You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. There has been a destructive force unleashed on this town such as I have never seen. Okay, well, folks, I can do a clearance, but uh, it's not going to be cheap. Although I do offer a six-month guarantee. That fellow takes us totally for granted. Hey, Stuart, in or out, huh? Frank Bannister had a remarkable ability. Psychic investigator? To communicate with the dead. You, you could see spirits? Emanations are normally confined to the cemetery. You cannot push spirits around! Although they do escape. And an uncanny knack. We're gonna scare the living daylights out of your parents. For making a profit off the living. We're supposed to be his business partners. Everyone says that you're a fraud, but I've seen what you can do. Give it up, Frank. Death ain't no way to make a living. But now... Some things put the fear of death in the living. What is happening to me? And send the dead yes! running for their lives. I've seen a figure in a cape. That was the soul collector. When your number's up, that's it. Frank, we got problems. All these murders that have been going on in Fairwater, they're gonna pin them on you. Pictures and Robert Zemeckis. You're next, pal. And acclaimed director Peter Jackson. We don't stop till the screaming starts. Day. The Frighteners. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashu. Got me a score of twelve. That's one more than Starkweather. Also back in the booth after far too long of an absence is Mr. Jeff Myers. Hey, how's it going? Nice. Thanks for having me. We conclude Shocktober 2020 with a look at Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Made between Heavenly Creatures and the Lord of the Rings series, the film was a signal to Hollywood that Peter Jackson could play by the rules. It's the story of Frank Bannister, a man with a gift that he can commune with the dead. He uses this to bilk the people of Fairwater out of money by haunting houses via his dead friends. Unfortunately for Frank and the rest of Fairwater, there's a serial killer who plagues the city in hopes of scoring a record number of kills. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Frighteners, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So Jeff, when was the first time you saw The Frighteners and what did you think? I actually saw it when it first came out back in um, 96, and I was living in Portland, Oregon. I was kind of psyched to see it because... I had 
of course, seen Heavenly Creatures, which kind of blew me away, um, which also seems to be a refrain of several of the cast members in this movie. And then also, I had been a huge fan of, well, it was called Dead Alive when it was released in the States, but better known as Brain Dead. And I was baffled because, like, Brain, Brain Dead was the first Jackson movie I saw, and I laughed through that thing, um, crying the whole time. And then a couple, you know, whatever, a year or so later, two years later, I see Heavenly Creatures, and it's 180 degrees from what Brain Dead was. And so when The Frighteners came out, I had no clue what I was getting into. It proved to be neither of those. And at the time, I can't say I was thrilled about it. I was, like, disappointed with the movie because I thought it was going to be one or the other, not this strange mashup of kind of both sensibilities. But I will say over time, the movie has kind of grown on me as this kind of flawed pleasure that I have watched more times than I would have guessed I would have when I first saw it. And Chris, how about you? I remember watching this probably when I was been 15 or 16. I had bought off eBay a bootleg copy of Meet the Feebles on DVD. And so I had watched that. I had watched Bad Taste. I had watched Brain Dead, like you had already mentioned, Jeff. And then I got to this movie. And obviously, this movie is, like you've already said, Jeff, it's a mix of the two. But watching it then and watching it now, I think one of the biggest compliments for this film is this is the best Tim Burton film Tim Burton ever made because it shares so much DNA with Heavenly Creatures, but it also shares a lot of DNA with something like Beetlejuice. It feels like Beetlejuice amped up a little bit more. Like, frankly, this and Beetlejuice would be a pretty good double feature if this movie weren't two hours long. And I know some people's attention spans are a little lacking when it comes to two-hour movies. Rewatching it, Again, and getting through the making of DVD, the making of feature again, which is longer than the fucking movie is, I really like it, but I know that we're going to get into some of the flaws of the film because it is both a fun film, but it is also deeply flawed. It's interesting that you bring up Tim Burton, because for me, if it didn't have the design ambition that I always associate with Tim Burton, I kept thinking Sam Raimi that this felt in sync with when Sam Raimi started to go legit, quote unquote, you know, somewhere between Army of Darkness and Spider-Man. So like Darkman. Yeah, Darkman. That's a that's a good, yeah, it felt kind of uh, Sam Raimi-ish. I could see that. I say Tim Burton, and that's not obviously because Danny Elfman scored the film, but that is part of it. The other thing is like the subject matter feels Burton-esque. And the approach to it feels Burton-esque. Yeah, it doesn't have that Burton feel to it. And sometimes, especially with more recent Burton films, at least this has been my take, Burton's style gets in the way of telling a coherent story. And he needs to, like, back that style off because you can't survive on style alone. But I, I can see Sam Raimi. I can see the Sam Raimi comparison as well. Again, if you show someone this film and say, hey, the guy who directed this movie directed one of the highest grossing franchises of all time. He won an Oscar for those movies. Can you tell me who the director is? I don't think you're going to have people walking away from this film going, oh, it's a Peter Jackson movie. Peter Jackson has always been very Sam Raimi-like to me. I, I see him taking a lot from Raimi, especially in things like Dead Alive. I mean, the thing with the lawnmower so reminds me of Ash with the Chainsaw. 
I come to this movie and I think to myself, what are the Raimi elements? I mean, you've got a character named Bryce Campbell. So, okay. You've got the guy that plays Stuart who just looks like Ted Raimi. There are just so many things that always remind me of Sam Raimi when it comes to Peter Jackson's work. The cemetery tracking shots. He was doing the shaky cam, taking so much from Evil Dead, which is absolutely fine. I mean, Evil Dead is a fucking fantastic film franchise. Go ahead, take as much stuff as you want. And then later on, he would he would bite from other pieces as well. I'm surprised there's not a, an 88 olds in this film. You know, like had he made it in America, he might have been able to get the car. Like you, Jeff, I saw this in '96 at the theater. I also was a huge fan of Jackson's earlier works. I put uh, Heavenly Creatures was my favorite film of '94. Absolutely loved everything that he had done to this point. And this movie was just a real disappointment for me. Though, as the years have gone by, I have grown to like it and appreciate it more. I definitely appreciate it even more after seeing the making of and then seeing the director's cut, the theatrical cut. All of it leaves something to be desired. I think the director's cut gets closer to something that I can enjoy, but... This is one of those movies where it's not fish, it's not foul, it's not Raimi, it's kind of Peter Jackson, but it's also kind of Robert Zemeckis at the same time. I mean, a few weeks ago on the show, we talked about Poltergeist, which is a Steven Spielberg film directed by Toby Hooper, whereas this one feels like a Robert Zemeckis film directed by Peter Jackson. And as someone who does a podcast on Tales from the Crypt, that's the other issue that I have with this movie, is when you listen to that Zemeckis and Jackson talk about the early stages of the film with uh, Jackson and Fran Walsh, you know, essentially giving a two-pager to their lawyer and saying, you know, or their agent and saying, you know, do with the, with this as you will. And it comes across Zemeckis' table, who was obviously at the time before this film got made, was very deeply entrenched. I mean, he's one of the executive producers on Tales from the Crypt. And he shoots this idea down as a Tales from the Crypt script, which, by the way, I don't know how y'all feel about it, but it could have been a Tales from the Crypt script. It really could have been. They're pretending like it's not only because they wanted to flesh the idea out more, but the idea of like a parapsychology con man, that could operate within the Tales from the Crypt wheelhouse, even as much as branding it a Tales from the Crypt movie, which if that had been the case... If this had been the second or third Tales from the Crypt film, it would have worked a lot better than Bordello of Blood did or the third movie. That is a total nightmare, and I refuse to even mention the name so that people don't go and search for it. Well, now I have to look it up. It's called Ritual, and it's terrible. I agree with you that it could have been a Tales of the Crypt movie. I don't think it could have ever been a Tales of the Crypt episode because the episodes are punchy. They're they're about one thing, and they build to a punchline, and... My God, this concept is, I mean, this is what the word chock-a-block was invented for. Like, I feel like this movie, or even the concept, has so many disparate elements that I can't even begin to imagine it shrunk down to a 30-minute Tales from the Crypt episode, or 23 minutes, or whatever they did in it. I think it could only if they went with the the single kernel of the idea, that is, this is a 
paranormal con man. You just leave it at that. But what's the punchline? And that's the whole thing about... As someone who does a Tales from the Crypt podcast, I can tell you there are more episodes than not that have no punchline. And they are successful sometimes. But yes, I would agree. The Tales from the Crypt, as far as most people are concerned, is there's like a twist or a gotcha moment at the end. I don't know how you could do it with this, but I do find it funny that like Tales from the Crypt keeps coming up anytime you mention Zemeckis, the 90s horror movie concepts. It could have been broken into two Tales from the Crypt, one with the parapsychologist who's the con man and one with the couple and their weird sex games and stuff that they're playing. Going back and rewatching this movie after you know about Johnny Bartlett and about Patricia and all this kind of stuff, and then you rewatch the beginning, it's like, okay, I guess they're playing sex games at this point, but it really doesn't look like it from a rewatchability standpoint. All right, this doesn't necessarily add up why this is going on. Like the, I read the novelization and the novelization, it makes a little bit more sense that it ends with Patricia closing the door and you know that the ghostly figure is inside of the room with her. So it's like, oh, okay, now they're having sex. That makes sense. But with this, it's like, this is just an opening scare. It doesn't really add up to what the rest of the movie is. And that's one of the problems I have with this movie is the addition. This never has added up for me as far as murders taking place in the 1950s, Frank Bannister's wife dying 10 years ago, the series of murders that started two years ago where a whole bunch of people got killed. It's like, what happened in those intervening years? It just boggles my mind. Yeah, with all due respect to Peter Jackson, his rationalizations just don't cut it. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm calling bullshit. It's like, it's like the, I mean, he admits that the script was underbaked in its middle section. I would argue that it's underbaked pretty much all the way through it, except for maybe the last 20 minutes, which I think are pretty amazing, but it's such a hodgepodge of ideas that they are desperate to connect. I was trying to list all the things that were in the plot. So you have a con man whose dead wife turns out to be the victim uh, of the first victim too. Well, the the third, the first post death victim. Well, the first, the yes. first post death. Right, victim. the first post death victim, and then also he's not just a con man, but he's a con man who can see ghosts because he underwent a dramatic moment and. Why these ghosts? Who knows? And what do the ghosts get out of it? Don't know. I mean, Stu says they're partners, but I, I, I'm kind of going, and they get what? Well, they were supposed to get cigars, don't you? Right. And then it's a romance, and it's a serial killer mystery, and it's a supernatural fantasy, and it's also a slapstick comedy. Like, I'm just like, just pick three, dude. That was one of the weird things, too, in the novelization was – Frank saying, like, they give him kind of a a ticking clock. Like, he gets a letter from the bank that says, we need $15,000 or else we're going to take your house or whatever. And he tells the the ghost, if I don't get this money, you're going to go back to the cemetery, which then begs the question of, what the hell's going on with this cemetery where you've got Arlie Ermey protecting the ghosts, I guess, or keeping them in line? You have some people... In the cemetery, some ghosts in the cemetery. It just is just really weird to me. Like, what is going on at the cemetery? Are these victims being denied going to 
the afterlife because they were victims of Johnny Bartlett because he desecrated their corpses. I don't know. I don't get it. Like, and also this whole thing of the, him Bartlett as the um, grim reaper reaching in and basically like crushing their souls. I wouldn't think they would even be able to go to heaven. If he takes that life force and smashes it. I know I'm overthinking this way too much. There is no logic. I started going through like the number of things that just even the idea of, so why are they in the trunk? Nobody can see them. So couldn't they just sit in the back seat and couldn't they just fly? And why do they need the car at all? Right. Like they, they're haunting houses and then he gets the phone call at home and then drives there. So clearly they got there. Okay. Why do they all need to cram into the? Trunk to get back. Like, there's so many logical, like, after a while, you just go, oh, fuck it. It doesn't make sense. I'll just watch it for what it is. That is really where I came down on this movie is like, just go with the movie because it exists in a world that is completely without any sort of sensibilities. This is the film that tries to pass off clearly New Zealand as the United States when it is clearly New Zealand. And again, whose fault is it that we know how New Zealand looks? It's Peter Jackson's fault. <laughs> because if not for Lord of the Rings, you would not have people seeing the landscape of New Zealand and going, that's fucking Middle Earth. And that's Peter Jackson's fault. Guess who directed this movie? Guess who made a effort? He mentions in the documentary he didn't want to spend a year in Hollywood making this film. So he required it, or it was probably part of his contract, to have it filmed in New Zealand. And yet it doesn't look anything like the United States. So, like, even that alone, it takes me out of the movie immediately because I'm like, this is New Zealand. I'm going to differ with you a little on that, only because I was living in Portland, Oregon when I saw it, and it looked a lot like the Pacific Northwest. It just had that feel, like the the rain, the gray, the trees. But it still doesn't look like the United States. Right. Well, the actual community feels off, right? Like, it feels like something that seems 20 years behind somehow. <laughs> well, when you see the Linsky's house, when Frank Bannister drives through their, their fence, I'm thinking to myself, this is either a house in the middle of nowhere, because there's no way that this house meshes in the rest of town, or it's a set, because it looks so out of place with the rest of this kind of picturesque, rolling verticality that we... Because, I mean, Frank Bannister's house is ostensibly... Like, as high up as you can go overlooking the rest of the town. And they make a point of showing that over and over and over again. The book had it set in Maine. So, on the other the other Portland, as it were. And I've never been to Maine, so I have no idea what it looks like. But I agree, it does feel strange. There is a strangeness to it. And then when it comes to Jackson not wanting to be in Hollywood, I mean, there's a couple good reasons for that. One is that you don't have the producers breathing down your neck. And the other is that he gets to use all of his own local guys. He gets to use Weta, which he partially owns, and then gets to do a whole bunch of stuff with this that then he would use later on in Lord of the Rings. I mean, Johnny Bartlett as the Grim Reaper is a ring wraith. Like when I saw oh, 100%. The, right? When I saw the ring wraith, I was just like, oh, that's just like the Frighteners. reason the ring rates work is because the Grim Reaper in this movie really works. For as much as we've bemoaned the tone of this film, which, I mean, again, we're not the only ones. Almost any middle-of-the-road review of this film goes, someone doesn't know what it wants to be. 
it is still, at times, when it wants to be, a rather scary film. It really embraces the horror in a way that comedy horror films tend to not do so well. Especially in that bathroom scene. I mean, there's the whole ending, which is, I think, terrific for a lot of reasons, and we'll get to that, I assume. But the scene with the, the victim in the bathroom... I actually rewound it and watched it again. Rewound. I, 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 I you stepped know, backwards. <laughs> yeah, skip backwards. I hit skip. I'm just, I'm just so dating myself the minute I say rewind. <laughs> um, I was like, this is a f- really fucking creepy scene when the, when the Reaper comes through the mirror and reaches into this guy. I was like, that is just truly effective scare making even though the the movie for the most part isn't really that scary at all but as a scene i was really impressed with it i don't even want to talk about johnny bartlett's scythe as a grim reaper imitator it's like where did he get that and it's pretty darn cool the way he can like hit it and it and the blade will come out and stuff it's like where'd you get that dude but anyway It's a switch scythe. <laughs> hey, it's got to look cool. I mean, practicality be damned, it has to look cool. And the movie looks great. The effects in this movie are fucking awesome. The, all of the stuff with Cyrus and Stuart are terrific. I really like what they were doing. Though at times, and, and you see in that documentary where they're just like, we had to get this one scene to show Zemeckis so that he knew we weren't total fuck-ups. So here's the scene. And then when you watch it, in context of the movie, you're like, okay, yeah, here's all the bells and whistles, but the scene is really kind of logy. It's just like, come on, let, let's step it up here. Let's get a little bit more going. Sight gagamania, that scene. Oh, now we're going to spray the can through the guy's face. Oh, okay. Look at the dog with the jaw. By the way, uh, best ghost in the film, John Aston, under like 50 pounds of makeup and then another 50 pounds of makeup. Jesus, age Christ. What's funny, though, is he looks exactly like that these days. Yeah. Jaw and all. Quick note, I did not realize John Aston was still alive. Oh, yeah, he is. He goes to the uh, One World Cafe in Baltimore all the time, from what I hear. Can we talk about the judge for a minute? I'm looking at it going, okay, so first of all, I would love to ask Peter Jackson, like, why this trio of ghosts and how you chose to put them together and also why they're the only three who become his friend from the graveyard and all that kind of stuff. But- there's that moment in the museum where where <laughs> where he gets a hard on for the mummy and I'm sitting there going okay so a this joke's a little rapey um, but also for a moment I was like okay is this Jackson indulging in his meet the feebles instincts just for a split second amidst this Michael J Fox we hope for a PG-13 movie I just kept thinking, what was the thought process in that moment in that scene? He needed the judge to be there to shoot at Johnny Bartlett. Yes, there was that, but it's him humping the mummy. (laughs) I think that's it. I mean, I don't know why there's a a blatant... Is it necrophilia? I guess. (laughs) I mean, they're both dead. He likes it when they don't move. Sorry, I keep bringing up the novelization, but I read it, so you're going to hear about it. God damn it. Uh, yeah, you spent all that time and effort, so don't let it go to waste. <laughs> the whole thing with the museum and the classy restaurant, that stuff is is blown out so much more. That takes up so much room in this novelization, and it is 
cross-cutting between these two things and the museum stuff with uh, Stu and Cyrus and the judge is happening while Frank is at dinner rather than them showing up. And it's just like, what is going on? It's like they're trying to drum up business by going to the museum and they're freaking out some of the people that are at the museum and they leave his business card there and then they the museum ends up calling him he's rushing out of the bathroom because he saw the guy get killed and then we have so much stuff back at the restaurant talking about you know who was in here and you know oh frank banister was here oh and he was having dinner with this woman oh her husband just died that's really inappropriate to be out of this romantic place for a seance and blah 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 i mean it just goes on and on and on forever and then the newspaper woman somehow is at the restaurant and then somehow is at the museum as well. So it's just like, what is happening here? It just feels really sloppy and just takes forever for this to happen. I mean, and I, the, the newspaper woman and the guy that we see pretty much right at the beginning, the one reporter, like there's a whole thing with them going on and her hitting on him being this real cougar and all this. It's like, Wow, I'm glad all that stuff got dropped, but at the same time, she just feels like kind of an afterthought. Like she was in this novelization stopping the ad that Frank would run in their newspaper and she's calling him a fraud and there's just so many more scenes of her and now when she shows up it's just like when her soul gets taken away. All right, I guess it's kind of a poignant moment because it's replaying Frank's wife's death. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know who this woman is. She's just kind of a crude harpy. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of glad to see her die. You're telling me that in the book, the main restaurant that they go to is not a bizarre medieval restaurant. <laughs> you know what? You know what that scene harkens back to? Two things that they missed out on. The cable guy? Well, well, not that, but I was going to say there's a joke in Naked Gun. Where Frank Drebin says, I know this little out-of-the-way Viking restaurant. That is what this film's, like, medieval Excalibur, I think is what it's called, reminds me of. Because not only is this a film set in New Zealand meant to look like the Midwest, they claim, the West Coast, they claim at other times. There's a themed medieval restaurant in there that doesn't have jousting. That was a thing. Oh, I know it was a thing, but like... I don't know why they felt the need to include it. <laughs> that's that's more to my point, is like, why did you have this in the movie when this doesn't add? Also, they don't exploit it. They don't exploit it for jokes. They don't exploit there it for... There should have been a joke about her saying like, oh, my husband likes coming here for our anniversary, but I think this place is really stupid. Or, or anything. There wasn't even a- Why didn't they there, say that? There wasn't even a waiter with a thee or thou. I mean, it's just- There wasn't was, Janine Garofalo putting on the act like she did in Cable Guy. Welcome to Medieval Times. I'll be your serving lunch, Melinda. Might I fetch you something from the barkeep? Dost, dost have thou a mug of ale for me and me mate? He has been pitched in battle for a fortnight. And has a king's thirst for the frosty brew, thus thou might have for thus. I'll be right back, my lord. My thanks to ye, fair wench. <laughs> that scene in Cable Guy's great. I would say that this movie's version of that is much more surreal. Like, this restaurant, I would go to this restaurant and wonder, like, who is here by choice and why do they like it? Cable Guy was out the same year, and the other movie that came out the same year was From Dust Till Dawn. 
And that movie also had, uh, that had super soakers full of holy water. And this has a squir- squirt gun full of holy water. It's like, what was in the air? What is this movie tapping into the zeitgeist? But you know what none of those movies had that this movie unfortunately has? Peter Dobson. I cannot fathom casting him in films or TV because every time I've seen him in anything, this and Tales from the Crypt, he is just insufferable. To like a point where I'm like, just, I'm glad that your character is no longer in this film. But he's also representative of what's wrong with the script from a plot level, also on the character level, because there are moments where he's acting like a genuine husband that she would grieve. Like when the ghosts are attacking in the house and everything, his his instinct is to protect her and like he's the good husband. But then... There's also he's the bad husband and he's the like kind of the whiny jerk. And I just kept going, I don't know what this character even is. Like, if you just make him a jerk, then I would get it. Although I wonder why she was with him. But it was like so schizophrenic of a character. And I don't think it was the actor's fault. I'm not saying he's a good actor, but it seemed like this was all in the writing. Like this was just, he served whatever they happened to need in the scene that they were creating. And that's as much thought as they gave to him. His second death does nothing for the story. He doesn't even get a death. There's just like the, the air has been let out of his body. deflated. (laughs) And it's just like cast on top of her car. The end. It's like, why is his character in the movie? Once he's dead, he doesn't add anything other than, making the case that we get to see this bizarre medieval restaurant, which that's seemingly it. Also, just like they throw in that he did something with $16,000 of her money. And then I was sitting there, but wait, also, she's a physician. How much does she get paid that 16000 is devastating to her? And it was almost like they just said they did a first draft and then they went, well, this stuff, most of this stuff is fine. <laughs> we'll put the attention on the things we really like, which is basically the ending. <laughs> It felt like you're driving down a road and you see all the tropes and instead of avoiding them, you just turn into all of them. Like you have a movie where the husband dies and there's a character who can talk to the dead. So, of course, you have like the dinner scene. And then, of course, he like sacrifices himself and she can't see him. And there are parts of this film that are very clever, but anything to do with Peter Dobson's character is far from clever or funny or interesting. And again, this movie's two hours, and Jake Busey claims, I don't know if y'all saw this, that there's a seven-hour cut of this movie. Seven-hour cut! That sounds like the assembly cut. That does not sound like any sort of final cut. Jake Busey must have been smoking something, because if there's a seven-hour cut of this movie, what was it, like the dailies, maybe? Like, uh... Yeah, it's probably just an assembly. Yeah, there's no seven-hour cut. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jake, Jake, these are the dailies. This isn't the movie. Oh, this is the movie. Seven hours, right? Like, no. What? No, stop. Have you guys thought about the parallel between Peter Jackson and George Lucas? I mean, you have this director who can't seem to stop recutting his movies and also developed an entire effects of house connected to the projects he's doing and then also created prequels that were far inferior to his original. <laughs> but I will say, if we're judging the work that they're judged by, Peter Jackson's work outweighs Oh, Lucas. yes. Because The Lord of the Rings, as far as I'm concerned, is the preeminent film 
adaptation of anything. It is the best book to film version of anything. Well, I'll quibble with that. And they leave stuff out and it still manages to be coherent and amazing. And those movies, like you already mentioned, Jeff, he goes in and adds another hour and a half of Tom Bombadil and all the other elves no, fucking each other. In no, the there's no Tom Bombadil. They gave all of his lines to Treebeard. Sorry. <laughs> Hashtag save Tom Bombadil. Hashtag John Rice Davies is a piece of garbage. Look it up. Um, yes, he is. He really is. I've never thought about it that way, but it's a really apt comparison. I don't watch the theatrical versions of those Lord of the Rings movies. I will just watch the ones, the extended versions of them. And I appreciate that he doesn't call them director's cuts, that he calls them extended versions. The extended version of the first Hobbit has a little bit more to it, and it makes it make a little bit more sense in terms of why the dwarves and the elves hate each other. But... Those movies are hot garbage, especially that third one. I've never tried to watch an extended version of that. As soon as Legolas started running up bricks that were falling like a fucking cartoon character, I checked out of it. I was just like, "This, I'm done with Peter Jackson for a long time. I don't need to see anything else for a long time. Between that and The Lovely Bones and King Kong, fuck all those movies. I was going to say, that's convenient, because Peter Jackson doesn't really make movies anymore, so it's like saying I won't watch another George Lucas movie. It's like, who cares? <laughs> like, okay, there's not a whole lot to watch post the, the good things anyways, you know? Well, I am curious to see They Shall Not Grow Old. I am curious to see the Beatles documentary, especially since I've seen features about They Shall Not Grow Old, but I haven't seen the movie Knowing what he can do with special effects, the way that he changed the frame rate, that he colorized, that he did all this stuff, that he added all the audio and all these kind of things for the Shalakra old. I'm like, what's he going to do if he has access to the entire Beatles library of movies? Who knows what this guy could do? He could, it would be like a 4D experience of them, like walking out, on, you know, if we ever get back to the movie theaters, walking out on stage, just like, fucking hey, we're here and just start playing. You know, it's like, who knows what this guy can do? Jeff, should we tell Mike, since I'm assuming you have seen They Shall Not Grow Old, should we tell him that they add a giant CGI dragon? <laughs> Is that what they troll. do? They fight World War One and then they fight a dragon? The troll in World War One was a bit much, but... <laughs> you didn't realize that that whole thing just adds up to, like, at the end, there's, like, Winston Churchill and Smog are talking at the end, like... But it was really weird. They killed Smog within five minutes. It was a little weird when Hitler had one of the rings that make him disappear but <laughs> yeah all of a sudden hitler is in the bunker and puts the ring on and just disappears <laughs> or john lennon's riding a dragon playing hey jude i mean you know, <laughs> he's got all these special effects technology where will he stop well uh, not anytime soon so i just hope that when he finally hopefully puts out meet the feebles and bad taste and dead alive aka brain dead that he doesn't fuck with them and that he just lets these movies be i hope that he's not that much of a lucas i found this to be a pretty intriguing mix of performances and approaches and what the hell happened to trini alvarado like I don't know, she was like the Gen X version of Andy McDowell, and she kind of vanished. But I liked Trini Alvarado. Um, it was a really interesting menagerie of an ensemble, and everybody had kind of a different 
performance approach. I kind of felt like I was watching three or four different movies given depending on which character I was watching, because Chi McBride's character is way different than Jeffrey Coombs' character, which is way different than Michael J. Fox's character. And I don't mean just who they are, but even how they're approaching what they're in. Considering how Jeffrey Coombs' character is essentially a Hitler lookalike. Well, he's Dr. Strangelove, like, you know, right? The thing about Jeffrey Coombs' performance is, I think it's the film's most ingenious piece of, like, characterization, but at the same time, he's in the wrong movie. This is a completely different film that you've walked in from. It's the one I would have preferred to. <laughs> I would have loved a Dammer's prequel where he's talking about being a sex slave to the Manson family and having to eat human flesh and dance under the moonlight and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, if this is what I want to see, how did that guy become this guy? And then they put it over the top where he opens his shirt and he's just mutilated beyond words. Like, that scene for me is the scene that you can point to if you're a critic and say, this movie doesn't understand its tone at all. Because that is so twisted and bizarre and disgusting and dark. And it's like, this movie never goes that dark except for that one scene. And it does not make any sense. And then also just to look at the character he's playing, his performance in general, what I mean, is like I counted at one point before he says the word Lucy, he purses his lips nine times to kind of rev himself up to say that word. I kept wondering if some of he, what he was doing was improvised because there's that moment where he says, you are te- violating my territorial bubble, which is hands down, I think, one of the funniest lines in the movie. I can't remember the actor's name, the, 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 um, the, who played the sheriff, Troy Evans. You can see it right in the shot. He's struggling not to crack up. He's corpsing. Corpsing is British theatrical slang for unintentionally breaking character by laughing. It was like they just said to Coombs, go batch it crazy. Have fun. <laughs> like, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter what movie you're in. We're just going to let, we're going to unleash you. He shows up. A little too late for me. He's this weird injection that the movie gets, and it's like, doctor, the patient's already dead, but they're going to go ahead and and he's like the adrenaline shot to the heart. It comes back for a little while, but it's just like, okay, I really wish that you had been here earlier. Well, he does kind of charge up exposition-heavy scenes. So in that way, maybe Jackson's kind of a genius, because he realized, oh, I wrote these scenes that are heavy with expedition and they're not all that interesting. So I'm just going to let this guy totally railroad through all of it. And then from what I understand, all the Chai McBride stuff was improvised. So yeah, he is definitely doing something very different. Like in that documentary, there's all these scenes where it's like, okay, just say 10 lines and we'll pick the best one. Luckily, this isn't a Judd Apatow movie where they just keep all 10 of them. They actually chose one and they went with it. That Paul Feig style of directing, it doesn't work very well, does it? Well, it's kind of that, I don't have any ideas. Let's get all of your ideas. The script just says, they will ad-lib. In the interview with Chad McBride during the, you know, in the extras, I love the story he tells about how he read the script and he thought it was kind of crazy, but he, he didn't want to do it because it was clearly not written by someone who is black, a black character, clearly written by someone who's not black. And he made it sound like it was pretty bad. And 
if this were any kind of movie with really good extras, I'd get to know that bad dialogue. I want to know. I want to know what made him read it and go, I'm not going to do it. And then he sees heavenly creatures and he goes, OK, well, maybe I will do it. Plus, just a little plug. I mean, I loved him as Emerson Codd and Pushing David. He's like just brilliant. Yeah, he's always so good. And whatever I've seen him in, he's just he always brings such life to his roles. I, I really like that guy a lot. I mean, even in shitty movies like iRobot or The Terminal, he's still really good. And then you have Jim Fife, who hasn't been in a whole lot else, but he's really good in this movie. I like his character. Like I said, he reminded me so much of Ted Raimi. I don't know if it was the glasses or what it was. It was kind of, it was kind of like he was invoking Ted Raimi a little bit. And I could not get a beat on what he was in his previous life. Like, there's a moment where I think uh, McBride calls him the professor. So I'm like, oh, okay, was he a teacher in a, a former life? No, I have no idea about this guy. Looks like a disc jockey at the end of the movie where it shows them in, like, heaven. Oh, in their new clothes? Yeah, he looks like a disc jockey. And Shia McBride looks like a pimp? An all-white suit. Again, that's like just all part of the bad ghost logic of this movie. <laughs> like this movie's just so filled with bad ghost logic that it, it's maddening to try and think about. Like I was thinking at first, like I remembered when I was rewatching it for this, I had forgotten about the ectoplasm thing. So at first I'm like, why does everybody look like they're crying? Why is there like these streaks on the faces? I don't remember this. And then I was like, oh, right. Okay. It's ectoplasm. And I'm like, but then why does Ray as a ghost looks like he has fucking leprosy? He's leaking out of his ears at one point. Right. Right. And it's like, so what's, what are the rules to ectoplasm? And who thought this was a good idea? And, and it just keeps getting more and more absurd. Like even down to, even down to Frank. You know, Michael Jake Fox's character, when he sees the numbers on people's heads, he's supposed to see them like before they're going to be killed. But then he gets to the museum and the ghost who's rising to heaven has number 39 crossed on his head. So I'm like, okay, so he's seeing it after they die on this guy, but not on any of the other. Like, it just is maddening. (laughs) It's just maddening. Like trying to figure out in any one moment how it connected to the next one was driving me insane. What do you guys think of Michael J. Fox in this movie? Because, again, Michael J. Fox also doesn't have, like... It's not that he doesn't have a very big filmography, but he's not known for very much. I like Michael J. Fox. He just always brings such a warmth to his performance. I don't know if I necessarily buy him as the... I think he's supposed to be a little sleazy. He's supposed to definitely be burnt out. It doesn't feel like he's burnt out. He's almost like a a film noir character. The guy whose wife dies, who should never be behind the wheel of an automobile ever again. He killed his wife because of a car crash, and he's the worst driver in the entire world. Every time he gets into a car, he drives like an asshole. But I, I just don't see him as being this kind of burnt out somebody who can see ghosts and is living from gig to gig and constantly out hustling. I think you're hitting on, again, this idea of this this underbaked script, because what Jackson's doing is he has two radically different ideas about this character, and 
I think Fox had to pick one <laughs> and roll with it, which is it's either that he's suffering from kind of guilt and isolation after the death of his wife, that he feels this deep guilt and isolation. And if you notice, he like spends a good part of the movie avoiding eye contact with other actors. He's trying to lean into that in the scenes in the interrogation room. You get a real sense of the grief. So from that standpoint, the performance work for me. But then when he's trying to be the ghost-busting con man, and there's even uh, I think, Mike, you pointed out he's almost kind of got this Venkman-esque style when he goes into the homes, and there's even a little joke, like, between the two homes, how he mixes up the terms because he doesn't even get them straight, like his own his own con is you know, not very smooth. That just doesn't fit with the grieving widower. Like, those two things just don't work. That's the writing. I don't think that's the performance. I think he's, like, trying to balance these two things that Jackson didn't really integrate into a into a full-fledged character. I hate this. I like to torture him. That's right, boys. It's Dr. Venkman. What is that thing you're doing? It's technical. It's one of our little toys. Did the bed levitate? Yeah. Yeah, with me on it. Spontaneous recurrent psychokinesis. Oh, boy. Oh, this could be the worst case I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, this is bad. I love the film Constantine. And I know, Chris, you and I have talked about Constantine. Constantine has that look, has that, you know, even though it's Keanu Reeves, who's just fucking handsome as shit in that movie, he looks like he's been through the ringer, that he's lost friends. While we see him lose friends in the movie, we see him lose a couple friends in the movie in Constantine, and then he can also see all this shit that nobody else is supposed to see. Have that type of gravitas to it. Give me John Constantine. I think the problem was that they had Michael J. Fox, and they wrote this character as kind of the straight man in this crazy story in some ways. But now you have Michael J. Fox, who has serious comedy chops and makes comedy work in a very realistic way. Like, he's never broad and shticky. He actually is terrific at grounding comedy in all of the movies he's been in, good and bad. And I think it got to this movie and it was like, well, we want to make him comic, but we also want to make him the straight man. And it's like, you can't have both in one character, right? The straight man is there to set up the comedy or he's the comic character. But he, it being both, it becomes self-defeating. Yeah, there are the moments that he's in the car with the judge, which I think get completely axed out of the theatrical version. And that's that kind of relationship, like him and the judge, and they're going back and forth, and the judge is much more the straight man in that type of role, even though he looks so crazy in in all the makeup and everything. But yeah, I I liked the back and forth between him and John Astin. And I did have to laugh in the extras when he would fuck up and call John Astin Doc. Which is amazing. Yeah, it kind of tells you what he's been doing for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love that you brought up the driving because, for one, I don't know, Jackson, like, he loves his wacky Benny Hill-style driving sequences. <laughs> and and I kept thinking, 
I guess somebody should just let him remake Cannonball Running because I, I, I don't understand why that is even in the movie. It is so strange. And he's driving recklessly even before his business cards fall on the floorboards and he's trying to pick them up. Because I was just like, oh, well, that must be why he's driving so recklessly. No, it's any time he gets behind the wheel of a car, he's just tearing around and going batshit crazy around corners and stuff. Telling you, you could have stuck in the Benny Hill theme. I did want to talk about the other movie, the one with Jake Busey and Dee Wallace. Yeah, right? (laughs) The movie that they cut to in the last 30 minutes of the movie? The good one. The really good one. (laughs) Juliana McCarthy plays old lady Bradley, and I kept trying to find which Simpsons character she looks like. Because when we see her and she's got her hair kind of up. She looks like Ma from Futurama. Oh, that's who it is. That's who it is. That's why I have it in like a Simpsons state of mind. Okay. All right. Thank you. She totally does. And Jake Busey, I fucking love Jake Busey and talk about great casting. I mean, him, especially in those black and white sequences where it's uh, replaying the past and him uh, murdering all those people, him in black and white with those spooky fucking eyes that he has. It just looks so good. And I love that when he's in the future, that he's got the um, the burn marks on his head from when they electrocuted him. Really good stuff. I love how gleefully evil he is and that he's so driven by numbers that he's like really mad about, you know, Ted Bundy and wait till Ted sees, you know, how many that we get, you know, and then the, he gets uh, angry about the Russian guy who may have killed more than 50 people and how that record should be. Chickatillo. Yeah. So that. That record should be held by an American. What I also love about that is that that's where you kind of get the Kiwi sensibility view of the U.S., which is this idea that people may not remember, but in the 90s, there was a huge obsession with serial killers. Like the serial killer genre was crazy everywhere. And there was this kind of weird celebritization of serial killers. I think Jackson's slipping in a little commentary there because for them, you know, Port Arthur was was a hugely tragic moment that they reacted to with, you know, gun bans and new government policies. And we have serial killers and, and mass murderers and we don't change any gun policies and we make movies that make them look cool. We have fucking trading cards for them. Right. So I think that was, you know, I think there's a little social critiques that slipped in there that I I really appreciated. Well, and the fact that they use something that happened in the lovely state where I live, which was Starkweather. I find it funny that they reference Starkweather when the character that he's playing and the the whole story between him and Dee Wallace is the Charles Starkweather story. To a T, the killer and his accomplice, who they don't know if she was part of it or not, so they don't, but obviously Julian, I forget what her name is, the one with Starkweather, she's out now, so it's not like this where she didn't, you know, serve any jail time, but I found it a little weird because Starkweather is the inspiration for these characters, but then they reference him as well in the movie. And it's super weird because, because like even Jake Busey kind of looks like him because <laughs> he was kind of a blonde dude and he kind of had that like thousand yard stare that Jake Busey got from his dad, which is amazing. It's a weird like self reference that makes no sense like a lot of other things in this movie. 
the rewatchability factor of this movie is sometimes it's nil because it's like going back, you're like, okay, yeah, D. Wallace, Patricia, she's totally in on this. She was there. She was pulling the trigger on a bunch of this stuff. But when you watch it the first time, you're, you have that question. Was she involved? Was she not involved? You think that Lucy Linsky is really trying to help out this poor woman, that her mother is being abusive to her. Again, that opening scene doesn't necessarily work 100% because you know there's a ghost in the house by the time that Linsky shows up. They go as far as to plant evidence in the movie on her mom. And that scene, again, feels bizarre, because what's the justification for that being in there to begin with? It's like the worst Agatha Christie mystery ever. And is, is this a plot hole? Are we being too nitpicky? It kind of feels like we are, but at the same time, like, they make such a big deal about it in the movie. It makes no sense. Again, I just go back to the hodgepodge-ness of this. It's like, we know there's a ghost, so then we know that mom can't be the villain but then they're gonna say mom is the villain and they're gonna put the knife in and then so the knife we're supposed to believe is the mother's no that makes no sense there's just things thrown in that are almost like oh this will be a good misdirection i'll be thinking no it's a bad misdirection because it just it doesn't lead me to believe anything (laughs) like it just confuses things and that, well, isn't that inherently the issue with a movie that has a gotcha moment is because the screenwriters have to reverse engineer that moment in the prior film before? Some screenwriters don't give a shit about making sure everything up until that point makes sense in the context of this character is going to be a villain. The really good screenwriters know how to reverse engineer it so... Not only does the twist feel earned, but also the character's actions up until that point track where it's like this could be construed as suspicious or not. And in this movie, they they didn't take the time to reverse engineer the twist. And the twist is such a big deal at the end of the movie that it does kind of ruin the film. The details of the crime mostly have to be plausible. They don't have to be airtight, right? But the character behaviors need to be airtight. Right, exactly. And that's the part that they fail on, which is we have to believe that all these characters are doing things because it serves the arc of their story and who they are. Holds to their internal logic. Right. And if the internal logic of their behavior is just to serve the scene that they're in, and that can change depending on what the scene is, then it's almost like they're irrelevant as characters. They're they're just like props that are going to keep changing. The character of Cyrus and Stuart are kind of treated that way towards the like second half of the movie. A lot of characters. Yeah, it's weird to me because... You know, Shy McBride and Jim Fifey, they have such big presences in the first hour of the movie. And then in the second hour of the movie, they're killed pretty quickly. Killed. They're done away with. I mean, you see them at the very end, obviously. And they're done away in a non-dramatic fashion. Like, there's no arc to their end. They just suddenly are kind of not there. Yeah, Shy McBride gets cut in half and Jim Fifey gets the scythe through his head. And there's no no fanfare. You know, it's funny, like, we're capping on the movie so much and it is it's like a imminently capable movie if that's a word and yet i still like it (laughs) like um, because there's enough elements it's like kind of the most exasperating movie that i like (laughs) 
this for me gets filed into a very select folder in my brain of movies that they are their own thing and trying to explain them as anything other than its own thing, you should just watch it, is going to be doing the film a disservice. And The Frighteners is one of those movies where I'm like, it's kind of its own thing, and I like it for what it is. And it's kind of the exception that proves the rule when it comes to copying from other directors and styles so heavily that it almost feels like their movies, but not. This is one of those movies that is in its own separate space that it exists in where I can look at it objectively and it has a lot of problems. But at the same time, like you said, Jeff, I like it. It's it's a fun movie. I would rewatch it again sooner rather than later. This was not a chore for me to watch the four hours of extras, to watch the theatrical cut, to watch the director's cut all in an afternoon. I was just like, I'm here for this movie. The first time I watched it, I was very disappointed, but seeing it again on cable and things, I'm like, okay, I'm getting used to this movie because it does live by its own non-logic. Because if you do what we're doing and trying to bring logic to it, it will drive you crazy. But if you just accept it for what it is, it's like, okay. And there are some great moments in here. And talking about how Dammers just doesn't fit in this movie. I love the Dammers character and, and find him <laughs> incredibly watchable. Yeah, he's wonderful. And I just can't say enough about the final 20 minutes or half hour. The chase sequence through that abandoned hospital is so good. And I feel like that's where you see Jackson at the height of his directorial abilities where you have this intercutting between the past and the present and how he's using things like shotguns to transition. And it's interesting because he's even like referencing his own work because it's similar to a scene in Meet the Feebles. I was just really impressed with what I like to call cinematic geography, which is you know where everything's going on and how it's going on and how it fits together in a way that none of the rest of the movie fits like the logic within the chase in the, in the final scene and the way the internal story of the chase plays out is done so elegantly in comparison to like the weird discombobulated Frankenstein monster. That is the overall movie. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. Not only does it have all of its own logic. It feels like its own movie because all of a sudden Michael J. Fox's character can see visions of the past. Right. New new power. Yeah. Question mark. Never explained or addressed because not only do you see him seeing that, you see Trini Alvarado seeing him seeing things. And that's such a weird thing to see in a movie like this because normally you're seeing the character reacting to stuff. And you're just focusing on the character. The fact that she can see him just like, you know, having like a, a vision quest in the last 20 minutes of this movie is insane. I kept thinking, is that because he died and then was brought back? Like, that was the only I was trying to go. How does he have this new power to see the past? And then I was like, OK, maybe was it because he died for whatever, an hour or something before she revived him? Well, you know, what else is never explained is the idea that. He's seeing the past, but what the, the point in my mind of him seeing the past is for there to be, if this were any other movie, that's when you reveal the twist 
that D. Wallace's character is the villain. The way you would have it in a normal movie is Michael J. Fox is by himself walking through the hospital. Trini Alvarado's character is with D. Wallace's character. And you're getting to the twist at the same time. And you're having her finding out, you know, finding the knife or something or finding her mom dead while he's seeing the vision of her and Johnny Bartlett doing their thing together. And it's like, same time. In this movie, it's like, no, here's the twist. You know she's the villain. But then here's the backstory to the twist. You're exactly right. Like, from a writing perspective, the the way you laid it out is the more effective way to deliver a big whoa moment. Because that's what the movie wants. That's what the movie wants from us is to go, oh, shit, I didn't see it coming. It shows you everything. It keeps going, oops, I guess I showed you that. Okay, let's just keep moving. It shows you the card before it tries to play it. Is your card, wait, hold on. Is it this, wait, is it this one? Wait, 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 let me, let me jury rig the card. Okay, now, is it this one? (laughs) And what's even more bizarre is the film goes on to break its own logic again, where Michael J. Fox is dead, and he's going to heaven, and he grabs Dee Wallace. Yeah, pulls the soul out of her. (laughs) Which no one's ever done before. No, again, completely new revelation that you can, as a spirit, pull someone else's spirit out of them, and then they go to heaven together. But then they don't, they go to worm hell. I kind of assumed that what Michael J. Fox was doing was kind of a version of what Johnny was doing when he was going around squeezing their souls or whatever he's doing. But still, it made no fucking sense. Like, if you watch that documentary about the movie, it feels like with the end of the film, everybody was just exasperated and like, just get this over with. (laughs) How do we end this fucking movie? Peter Jackson, it's kind of like he goes, well, you know, it's a little underbaked. And I really wanted someone to go, dude, it makes no fucking sense. It's not underbaked. You just look, you did a good job, but it make it, it's a mess. It's a fucking mess. Dammers and Lucy, him taking her away, like he has to take her away from the freezer where Bannister is. So he's going to throw her in a car. He's got this weird weakness where if a woman yells at him, he can't take it. But I guess the radio drowns it out. Drives her to but the he throws c- up, <laughs> right? He throws up. <laughs> drives to the cemetery of all places because he likes the quiet, and that's only so that then Bannister can get the machine guns from the Arlie Army character and machine gun down Bartlett and then almost defeat him. I mean, it's just, why did you go to the cemetery? Here's my favorite part. I like to go there because it's quiet, which he says two seconds after blasting Sonic Youth to the whole ride there. You said Arlie Army character. Most movies would just have a character aping Arlie Army. This movie, again, things that in my mind, stick out like a sore thumb. You have Arlie Ermey just in this movie. It sticks out like it's so bizarre. Unfortunately, in the deleted scenes, you don't get to see Arlie Ermey's head turn into a butt in the actual movie. But that's a thing you can watch in the deleted scenes for the film. It's like he went, hey, hey, do you like Full Metal Jacket? We we got that guy. (laughs) That was the entire logic of having that. Thank God they cut out that giant cherub, that disgusting-looking cherub. The gatekeeper. That was a really bad idea, and I'm glad that they got rid of that. But it sounds like they got rid of it really late in the edit. Very rarely do we get to see a crazy movie like this with a documentary 
of the people in the movie saying like, yeah, we knew this movie was nuts. And like, they're not bad mouthing it. Like, and it's very rare with films like the Frighteners or other films that I wouldn't say they're vanity projects, but they're like completely out there as movies, just as a film going experience. They rarely get people like the entire crew and cast of the movie sitting down for like a three hour documentary. Like that in and of itself is insane. And let me say this too. When a movie comes out that has a regular cut, a director's cut, and a four-hour making of with introductions by the director to the director's cut and to the, the extras and stuff, that came out on the Laserdisc. And I expected to never to be able to find all of that again. But no, this is on the 15th anniversary edition of the Blu-ray you can get it for 10 bucks. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, usually stuff like that, it's like, that's too embarrassing. We don't want to continue to have, you know, all these different cuts and have all this making of stuff because sometimes that stuff is so fucking hard to find, like all of these discs that are going out of print and stuff. But no, here it is 10 bucks. You got it. You got two versions of the movie. You got a four hour making of and all this horseshit. One, you had these American Hollywood actors in fucking New Zealand with time on their hands when they're not doing their scenes. So why not do an interview for the for the documentary or whatever? You have Peter Jackson kind of building his career and his new effects studio. So he's probably wanting to document all of that. And then he creates arguably the biggest three films in Hollywood history. And he can do whatever the fuck he wants now. <laughs> That's the final part is the part that makes the most sense. (laughs) If Peter Jackson had never been that successful, you would see fuck all none of this stuff. Like, they never would have gotten it off the Laserdisc for the Blu-ray. There wouldn't be a 15-year Blu-ray. Nobody other than, like, the diehards. Like, I guarantee the three of us probably still would have seen it because in the wheelhouse of so many other things we clearly all are very into. But this movie would not have a Blu-ray. It wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been a Universal Blu-ray. It might have been like a Kino Lorber or a Scream Factory Blu-ray. But like this is a Universal Blu-ray on top of everything else. And they would have been struggling to make this documentary about the making of 15, 20, 25 years later when it's like, yeah, there's good luck getting fucking Michael J. Fox to talk to you about this stuff. Good luck getting any of these people to talk to you about it. You know, you're never going to get Jackson on camera now being as open as he was at the time. I still haven't made my way through the extras for the Lord of the Rings disc. I mean, those are so plentiful and so long that it's like, I'm still just like savoring those and like, oh, maybe one of these days I'll sit down and watch all the Two Towers extras now. I mean, it's a shame that the Lord of the Rings didn't get something like this, right? A lot of the big movie franchises have, I mean, Alien has all of those amazing Alien documentaries, which is like the only reason worth owning Alien is those... It does, Chris. It, it's got tons of extras. Lord of the Rings. Oh, does it? Oh, does it yeah. have the, like... Oh yeah. oh, yeah. There's literally documentaries of the blacksmiths and how they made, how they made the armor. <laughs> I've never owned a physical copy of Lord of the Rings. Ah, so. okay. But the alien uh, physical copy, those are great. Like, that's not a thing that happens anymore. I know, I miss it. It's a shame. It's film school on DVD or Blu-ray, you know? It's like, you learn 
so much, not just even about making movies, but how the industry works and how people interconnect. And uh, like one of my favorite parts of the Frighteners extras was the Reaper designer and them talking about the evolution of what the Reaper would look like and how they didn't want it to be like there was something in the robes that the Reaper is the robes and that the hands are literally part of the actual cloak. So they're ragged and they're, you know, fabric like and seeing these illustrations that 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 the artist was doing with each iteration, even how that decision came about accidentally, like he had drawn the hands in shadow and they mistakenly thought that that's what he was doing. And they were like, Ooh, let's do that. And that to me was fascinating. And it shows how the creative process is as much deliberate as by accident. You can't compare this to a small comedic film or like a, or like a Ghostbusters because while Ghostbusters might be an apt comparison for certain parts of this movie. To me, this film feels like Jurassic Park, just based on the amount of like CGI and computer work and like... It has 10 times the effects of Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's insane to me. This movie should be remembered for a lot of things and the amount of effects and like groundbreaking stuff in this movie that doesn't obviously seem like it anymore for a number of reasons. But, you know, this I'm tying this back to the documentary because... Again, that's another lost thing that you don't get to see is this like kind of early mid days of CGI and like where we were going with it. And like, oh, you know, this was a really hard thing making this slime monster in the sewer run around. It's like, boy, how far we've come in 24 years. Now we make fur that convincingly blows in the wind. Right. (laughs) Exactly. The thing that I was amazed at was that. Michael J. Fox wasn't acting with these guys on the same screen, you know, that they were all shot against blue screen doing all of their stuff. And I was like, that just seems crazy now when you think of just in a few years that Andy Serkis would be there in the white suit and being Gollum with Sean Astin and and Elijah Wood. And here are these guys. And so then you see like Michael J. Fox, when we first see Stuart show up and he's like imitating that uh, he's going to throw up in order to make Stuart throw up. And it's like, these guys were shot at different times. This is pretty amazing. Yeah, it was really impressive. And even just like, when D. Wallace was talking about the knife scene, which we all love, and I even love that Danny Elfman, in the, when they're interviewing him, and he's saying that's his favorite scene, and uh, it is. It's such a great scene. It's 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 brilliant, and it's crazy to me that it got cut from the movie. But where D. Wallace is saying, like, she just has to stab into air, and he's going, well, you're hitting him in the crotch now. <laughs> like It's like and she had to keep, re- keep readjusting her arm for something that wasn't there. Speaking of Danny Elfman, I find it funny because, and this is something that's kind of come up whenever Danny Elfman kind of isn't a, you know, scoring a film. And I think that it's really funny to hear him address it head on. And I had seen this before this doc, this making of documentary. I just didn't remember it. I find it so funny how he addresses people who claim that he always sounds the same. And he's just like, yeah, of course I sound the same. No shit. I'm one guy doing one thing. What do you want from me? Like, Hans Zimmer always sounds the same, especially when he's working with Nolan. John Williams ostensibly sounds the same always. Like, listen to Harry Potter's theme and then listen to 
anything from the Raiders suite. And you know what he's evoking, but he's pretty much playing in the same sandbox the entire time. I think the bias against him is that he has a playful approach to his music that somehow reads to some people as less serious or less accomplished, which I think is bullshit. But he has this willingness to be playful in the themes and the approaches, and and he's not as married to these traditional classical motifs that you say is showing up. You know, John Williams is basically aping Holst when he did Star Wars. And Sousa. Right, <laughs> right. And Elfman is working off of a different kind of template that somehow doesn't sound as grand or as timeless to some people. Again, I think that's bullshit. And I'd say that if I weren't friends with one of his children. Um, <laughs> she's never going to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after how many times I've made fun of Danny Elfman for just repeating himself. <laughs> Mr. Mike White. I mean, you take that Dick Tracy sound and you play that against the Batman sound and it's really fucking similar. Then play it again. Uh, I just forgot the name of the movie. You know, the, the Charles Grodin De Niro movie. Uh, Midnight Run, which sounds Midnight completely Run. different. This yeah. movie does not sound like a Danny Elfman score throughout most of it. There's only one moment where you get the children, the ah, ah, kind of thing. Oh, right. you mean when it sounds like Tales from the Crypt? Yeah. And, <laughs> or, or a like Tim Burton Tales film. from the Crypt theme. And then I'm like, or a okay, Tim this, is, this is him, but... For the most part, I was not annoyed at the music. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago about Nightbreed, and there were so many moments in there where I was just like, this is a fucking Danny Elfman score, and they're jamming it down our throats. But with this, I was like, okay, yeah, this works. I honestly, through watching the film, I see, I, I felt differently. I felt like it was always omnipresent Danny Elfman, but I don't mind that. Because again, I can appreciate him for what he's doing not in comparison to others in what they do. Because honestly, comparing Jerry Goldsmith to John Williams, to Danny Elfman, to Hans Zimmer, to Junkie XL, you know, they've all done a lot of work for films, and they all operate in their own sandbox. So why do you need to compare them? It's almost unfair to compare them and expect them to not do the thing that they're always doing anyways. I think they're just pissing on the fact that he was a, a pop rock guy who transitioned and he didn't come from a classical background or a jazz. Trent Reznor's doing it, too. Now people are very open to it. But I think Elfman was kind of a breakthrough coming from a different genre of music and becoming a, you know, a, a composer. People still shit all over fucking Toto for their Dune soundtrack. And that's a motherfucking great soundtrack. Yeah. Yes, it sure fucking is, especially the outro track. Because it's Toto, and because they have a really stupid name like Toto, they get made fun of. According to the Ramones, they weren't very nice people. You know, there was that phase in the 80s where rock musicians started to be tapped for scores like Peter Gabriel and others. And it was interesting to watch how the critics and the cinephiles were kind of turning their nose up at this as if they were less accomplished musicians than those that came from a jazz or classical background, which, of course, is just like fucking bullshit. But 
I think it's a generational thing. Those rock and roll kids, they think they can do everything. Well, look at Mark Mothersbaugh. That's all he does now. I mean, and you know what? Mark Mothersbaugh did the uh, soundtrack for Thor Ragnarok. And that movie has like the best uh, score for any of the Marvel movies. It's weird to me. But at the same time, like, I'm a huge fan of Danny Elfman. The things that you can name that he's done that have been influential in my own personal life, like something that I grew up with, like The Simpsons, hearing that every week, or Beetlejuice, or another one that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But I think for me, it's probably his, like, my favorite thing that he's done. The Men in Black score for the entire film is Danny Elfman. He's done so much, and he deserves to be in that conversation. But like you said, Jeff, There's this weird thing where he had to get past it, and now nobody cares anyways. He has the last laugh. He's essentially the second richest composer in Hollywood. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Agent Milton Dammers himself, Mr. Jeffrey Combs. After that, we'll hear from production designer Grant Major. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join Sordid Slime Slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series, Tales from the Crypt. Here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. (laughs) Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. There's a new podcast on the block. Video Vortex Podcast. Listen in as Bucks, Ben and Steph have a conversational discussion and talk about how much films affect us as people and as a society. Yes, we do all of those things. Along with guests from the industry and beyond. And get sucked into the video vortex. Don't say sucked on a promo. <sighs> we most definitely are making up on the spot. Find us on assorted apps and at videovortex.podbean.com. Was this your first time working in New Zealand? Absolutely. I've never been there in my life. You know, always seemed to be an exotic place that I'd like to go to, but I really had no frame of reference except having done a movie in Australia back in the early 90s. But that's like, there's nothing all that similar between Australia and New Zealand. They, They would be offended at that even thought of them being somewhat similar. Uh, it's, it's a friendly rivalry, like baseball teams or something. Did you have to audition for this, or was it just offered to you? Oh, please. No, 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 not offered. I guess the story goes that my agents at time had pitched me some time months earlier as coming in the audition, and, and they do that 
through the ca- a casting director, right? So they told me later that they were always too young for what we're looking for. Thank you very much. So they went out and kept looking and kept looking. And uh, Peter, I guess, just wasn't finding what he wanted or not quite. I, who knows? But I guess the call came out to like sort of spread the net a little wider and well, maybe, okay, maybe he can. Sure. Sure. Kind of, let's see. And uh, so I got the audition, worked on it a lot. I had it for a week, a lot of material, that whole speech and everything. So um, it was the scene with uh, Michael J. Fox, the interrogation scene. And um, so I worked on audition with Jackson. I have to say I did a lot of wrong things, but he said, wait, try it this way, which I tried to do my best to do. And um, and then uh, I was his pick. I mean, not right away, but, you know, it's funny. At studios, it's like everybody has to say yes. And it goes through a whole protocol of everyone agreeing. It finally came my way, unbelievably. How much of Milton Dammers was on the page versus how much did you bring to it? It's pretty self-evident on the page that he's got some issues. <laughs> I have to say that um, Peter had some very clear notes about what he wanted, and I think I was able to kind of do that to his satisfaction on the jump. And it also, his direction rang true to me, like, oh, yes, of course, that's what it is. So he was happy with that. Tell me about the haircut. That was when, when just before shooting, and we had, I went down three times. The first time I went down was just to read the script. It was the principals, including Michael J. Fox and Fran and Peter, informally at their house, just sitting around and reading the script, letting them hear it through our mouths. It was sort of a way for them to verify or alter things they didn't like. And so then uh, the second time I went down was when we were going to start shooting. And I kept trying to figure out, you know, I went to the costume, saw what I was going to wear there. And I was just thinking of the backstory of this guy and how he had destroyed himself with his blind patriotism to submit himself to all kinds of horrible things in the name of country and apple pie. And, 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 and now his psyche's just so fucked up because he's been undercover just way too long. I was thinking about, you know, that's basically nationalism. When you're that deep in, you allow yourself to be abused like that for your country. And I, and I got to thinking of Hitler. And I went to the Wellington Library, and I brought back a book, a pictorial book of um, young Hitler. And I showed Peter a picture of a young Hitler with his hair cut like that. And without much hesitation at all, he went, yeah, that'll be good. And I went, oh, boy, okay, now I'm in it. But it sort of exemplified that kind of um, spirit that Peter was trying to go for with this guy. And, and a, um, it's just a wonder, wonderful collaboration with Peter. I mean, it was a real uh, give and take, a real blend of what about this and how about that? Do this. And 
I remember Peter saying very early on that one his eyeballs to be just black holes. So they got me some contact lenses so that you, you, my eyes are just like wide open pupils. Gone. Just sort of very starkly drawn, you know, characters. Hard to miss. How do you maintain that type of energy? I mean, you just seem so twitchy just all the time. Just how do you manage to, to be that way? Uh, I listen, I don't, how can I answer that question? You make choices, you prepare yourself, uh, not just for this role, but you know, it's trusting. You just have to trust and years of experience and training and, uh, making choices that you feel are kind of right and sticking with them, being committed to it, going halfway is neither here nor there. You also have to remember this movie was shot over many, many weeks. So it's not like I'm twitchy and running around all the time like that. It's here and there. The hardest part was like being a regular dude with that haircut. I just wear a hat. I just wear a hat all the time. Tell me about the chest, not the chest plate, because you show your chest at one point, you've got the iron thing going on or the, the lead, but then at the other lead point... Breast, you... Lead breastplate, yeah. And then you rip open your shirt again later, and we get to see your roadmap of pain. That's all Peter's vision and his incredible uh, special effects house. Speaking of collaboration, this has never happened to me, hadn't happened to me before that, nor since. But those guys, all of those designers, came to me, and they said, this is what we think we'll do on your chest do you have any suggestions? What do you think? Which design dudes never do. Because design dudes want to be the designer and they don't want any uh, other cooks in the kitchen a lot of the time. That's my work, right? But not these guys. Not these guys. They were collaborative and generous. And you know what? Maybe we get a good idea from somebody else. Most of there is them. No doubt about it. But I did suggest just one thing. I just said, I think I want to have an incomplete tic-tac-toe game of carp in my chest. Like, it's not done. Like, they used me. Didn't, they ran out of paper. And, uh, or maybe as some sort of initiation in some dark, hideous cult. So an unfinished tic-tac-toe game, which they loved that idea. <laughs> Even there, I got to contribute, which is really not the way it goes, I was so happy to see the director's cut and to see that restored scene of the swastika on your hand and the story about being in the Manson family. I have that hand, that that, that whole hand. There was a, I don't know, I, I didn't shoot it, but there was an original in the script where I, when I first knocked on the door of the old house and when she opened the door, I'm holding up my hand with my FBI badge and it's, my hand, my arm is lopped off with a hatchet right in it there. <laughs> so they, they cast a hand and holding a thing, you know, and then they opted to not do that. There were changes in the script for my character. I was never supposed to be shot and then you see a ghost image. That was not the original. The original was she shot me and I flew through the doors. I'm dead. And that's the last time you ever saw me. A ghost. But Peter in shooting realized, no, wait a minute, I can have a little reprise of you in the back of the car, police car at the end. So that was all added as we went along. 
anyway, after shooting the Ouija guys, the special effects guys, Richard and the gang presented me with a, uh, with the hand, <laughs> with the swastika on the palm, with my shirt sleeve and, uh, Jack and all that, but but on a, like a trophy pedestal. And I've used that a number of times uh, over the years at Halloween as part of my design out front, the graveyard with a hand coming out of the ground, you know. Yeah, I still have that. Anyway. Do you remember any other changes that went on? Because it does feel like there was a lot of stuff that was shot that even in the director's cut, they didn't end up using. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of like, director's cuts because a lot of the time that's a uh, that's a bit more of a gimmick than it is a reality because I think pretty much Peter got to put together the film he wanted to get to get put together. I don't think there was too much of a taking the movie away from him and changing anything. I think he put together the film he wanted to so director's cut mm, I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure it just happens Reanimator as well, you know, there's like a longer, all the scenes put back together version. And I'm going, no, 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 no. There's a reason why they wound up on the cutting room floor. There's a reason. And you just want more reanimator, so you want everything in there, but then it becomes less forceful, less the thing that it is. You know, uh, I love the saying there's, you make three movies the one you write, the one you shoot, and the one you edit. It changes. Can't help it. You find your strengths, your weaknesses, uh, things that don't really work, things that are illogical. Pace. Pace is really important. You put everything back in, and it's just kind of like, it's a new problem. I haven't seen, I should say, the director's cut or the extended version. I haven't seen any of that stuff. They probably just threw every, everything together, didn't they? They just put everything in there that was decided at one point, mm, let's not do that. Now it's now it's okay. It's extra. To be honest with you, I think I kind of forgot about the whole Charles Manson reference and all of that. Did we shoot that? Did we actually shoot it? Oh yeah, it's all shot and edited. The sounds all there. It looks integrated into the film perfectly. And, and where is it in place in the movie? Where does it come along in the movie? That was when you have Trini in the back of the police car and you're out in the cemetery. It's before. Oh, so my so my speech is longer in the cemetery. I see. So yeah, that's probably right. I froze my off that night. <laughs> you you realize you got to move things along. I guess. Um, I had such a good time making that movie. One of the best experiences I've ever had on a film set. What was it about that one that made it? Better than, say, some others that you've been on. Collaboration, the, the level of expertise, the artistry. Uh, I was in really good hands, and I knew it. Yet I was also made to feel I'm free. You know, it's also a comfort when you know your director's happy with what you're doing. I mean, he, he wasn't fawning. He wasn't, like, praising like that. That's not Peter's way, but... But at the same time, I felt comforted knowing that he was was pleased. Often he couldn't stop giggling, which is kind of maybe a good sign, except when it blows a take because he makes me laugh when he's doing it. So we had a we had a lovely time. And plus the crew, the locale, 
the Weeda people were just lovely. Uh, I was just in a really, really ideal place. It's just uh, a, a convergence of good things. And getting to work with Michael J. Fox and uh, just getting to meet everybody, uh, actors in front of the camera, behind. Real good group of people. Good, good people. Good spirit in New Zealand. When you come to a character, how do you approach them as far as do you like write a backstory and try to get into their head as far as what they've been up to until the moment that this film is taking place? To a degree, not with any crazy kind of specificity like dates and times and and all of that. But I, I start first with what does the script tell me? Not only with exposition, but also with what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. And then if it doesn't fill in those holes, then maybe I do. Just I don't have to tell you, but I the more specific an actor can be for himself, the more specific it will be for the audience, even if uh, I don't explain to you why uh, I do what I do. It doesn't matter as long as it's coming from a honest or truthful place. I'm not there to spell it out for you. Just like when you meet someone who's a little odd, you don't know their backstory, but you know, whoa, something's going on there. Kind of much like that. Uh, he's a bit of a curveball at that point in the movie. At that point, things are going along, doesn't look good for Frank. And then this, and you hear about an FBI guy coming and you think, oh, okay, the typical FBI guy. And then uh, it's like nothing, like no FBI guy you've ever seen and that just really throws everybody uh, like, oh, oh, no, FBI gone mad is kind of scary, actually. I literally turn into one of the one of the ghosts, one of the haunting people in that in that movie. Hey, listen, great storytelling, really vibrant storytelling by Peter and Fran. They really know narrative and they have a. Just a lovely, dark sense of humor about things. I think we shared that together. How the absurdity of it all. It starts there. And then you just dive. You know, this is about the specificity, but at some point you just kind of have to jump off the diving board. You just kind of have to commit. Uh, it's just a lot of preparation. It's a, it's a lot of uh, rehearsal uh, by myself, by myself before I ever show up. I do remember that when I shot the scene with Michael J. Fox, that I showed up on set just before lunch. And I think we ran through the scene a couple of times. And then Peter said, okay, we're going to shoot this after lunch. And Jeff, you know, you, you could just stay here and figure out what you want to do. And so I sort of did that. I kind of stayed and, uh, just kind of quietly worked through what I wanted to do to keep this room with four walls interesting for two or three minutes on film. That's kind of so you find motivation to move or make a move instead of just sitting and talking back and forth. For the most part, that Peter went with that. I trusted me, you know, nothing better than that. Have you ever had experiences that? are close to that level as far as just that comfort that you feel on set? A few, few and far between, but yes, I would say that, um, 
there were times on Reanimator where I kind of felt that kind of esprit de corps, I guess, uh, uh, that kind of cohesion of everything working together. When I did uh, my my one man show of Nevermore of Poe, that was a pretty amazing rehearsal period. Unlike anything I'd ever had with Stuart Gordon before, he was very, very sort of zen. A lot of the time he was very, uh, do it this way, I want it this way, very kind of really almost too forceful about what he wanted. But in that case, not what I expected. Very zen. I think it, I think it came from, he saw that what I, my instincts were on track, so don't fuck with it. <laughs> and that's the sign of a good director. If it's there, don't even be careful. A lot of the time, directors are not really interested in those kind of things. They're, they've got a time schedule, and God damn it, we just have to get this scene in the bag, and uh, i got to get my coverage, and uh, let's go, 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 go. Or it's technical. They're very technical. They don't really know how to talk to actors, really. It's kind of a mystery to them, <laughs> uh, which is kind of strange. But not Peter, not Stuart. And and I, and a few other directors, you know, you know you're in real good hands. You have done just a ton of voice work over the years. With you being stuck with COVID, have you been able to do voiceover work at least, or are you just completely out of it right now? This is what I sort of figured out with 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 the new unnormal here. Is the first thing that happened. If you wanted to continue to do voice work. Uh, my my voice over agent sent out an email to all their clients. I imagine all of them did and said, we're hearing from the industry that because of COVID, you know, you won't be coming into the sound booth. You won't be coming in to do anything because that's too, too dangerous or not optimum. So the word goes out, who has the best equipment? Who, these are our protocols that we need for the quality that we need of a recording. Who out there in the voiceover can say they have that at home? And that ain't me, dude. It's like now you have to not only, you know, if I wanted to be a tech person, then I would have been a tech person. But if I wanted to be an artist, I don't think I'd be a tech guy. It's almost like right brain, left brain. It really is. It's right, but my job is to bring a character to life, not have the the array of technical stuff that other people up until now have always done. Now all of a sudden, I have to be that too, and so that's really cut. So those that raised their hand and said, "Yeah, I got all that shit. Yeah, I'm good." Those are like the true geeks, you know, or. The guys like me that aren't really plugged into all that, and, and frankly, not even really interested in it. You know, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to find the plug. I don't want, oh, my God, I need this, and then i got to download that, and then I've got to do that, and then I've got to do that, and then, oh, and then i got to edit it. Now i got to put it through a compressor. Now I have to, oh, no. I'm not interested. That's a lot of work. And money. That just right then I went, okay, I'm out of this game. I'm totally out of this game because, you know, it's like saying, do you play baseball? Okay, but bring all your own equipment. I'm trying to find the right metaphor for it, but it's kind of like what never, you never had to have all that stuff now, but in order to play, you do just like that. 
And so that's where that's at. That's where that's at. I'm a big fan of um, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. I had heard that they recorded that with the voiceover actors in the same room. Is that your experience with that? Yeah, it is. Well, I was there. I did a couple where I played Professor Hatecraft, right? And uh, Harlan Ellison was there. And, and, and a lot of the other actors were there. And another time I was in one, and it was like, yeah, they were all there. Frank was over there doing his two, you know, Scooby-Doo and Fred. Yeah, yeah, everybody was there, as many as they could that were available on the day. Yeah, that's generally the way it's done. And when I did three years of Transformers Prime, we always, a horseshoe of actors, man. Justice League, a horseshoe of actors, just everybody at their station. Let's go. Let's get as far as we can and then go back and do it again and then move on when we're happy. It's better that way because people are reacting off what they just got as opposed to all plugged in. Then it feels kind of weird, doesn't have the same life to it. So, yeah, that's typically the way they can do it unless someone has a, a conflict and can't do it. Then, you know, they'll come in solo some other day and fill in. But for the most part, everybody's there. And a lot of the time when actors can have worked with each other, the other person kind of doesn't really need to be there because they kind of have a pretty good feel of how they would be playing it anyway. So they'll just imagine that. My experience in the voiceover that I've done, they do always try first to get as many people in to do it all at once. Are you able to do anything right now? Are you writing or anything? Acting is a collaborative art. You need all the other things. It's not something you can do on your own, like writing or illustrating or painting or poetry or whatever, whatever you. So it's, I've always had a hard time figuring out what it is that I want to do with my time or create. A real comfort for me has been my guitar. I've never been in a band. I'm not, but I, it is my private hobby and therapy. I don't really know very many songs except for things that I've written or picked out. And uh, I just have a repertoire of those. And I, let's just say I've added to it, <laughs> given all the time that, I, that, that I've had here in this COVID time. Uh, but it's what I do. I'll just kind of turn to just uh, centering myself by just losing myself and playing. To my wife's like, would you shut up? It's like, well, no, I'll just move. But uh, so there's that. I, I tell you what I'm having. Uh, what I'm having a hard time is reading. I used to read a lot and now I'm just so um, uneasy. I can't relax into uh, reading a book and uh, I can't let go. It's hard, finding it hard, distracted, too distracted. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad to have my wife and one of my daughters is here with us. And so, you know, I have company. I just can't imagine people that are all alone. Well, Mr. Combs, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Sure. Thanks to all the fans that check in on this, and, uh, and it's a pleasure talking with you. Okay, be safe.
how did you decide to get into design? I graduated from art school back in the mid-1970s. My first job I got was with the local TV station, designing as an assistant set designer, I think it was, designing studio sets. And I'd never been in any other business ever. So I really found my feet straight away, graduated from doing TV work into doing film work. You know, I spent some time at, um, in London at the BBC television there, which was at the time, the early late 70s, early 80s, was a very big, very big studio thing, Very probably very much like, I don't know, CBS and ABC and things like that in America. So it was a huge step up for me uh, learning the, the trade there. And um, I eventually came back to New Zealand and started working in films during the mid-80s. And then um, my first production design job was with uh, director Jane Campion in 1990. So been sort of production designing really full-time since 1990. What was the film scene like in New Zealand in the mid-80s when you came back? It's so called a sort of a frontier industry in a way. It was, it was, um, uh, we were definitely, we were making films, but the financial structure of them was such that they were, there was sort of a tax write-off for a lot of businesses. So um, uh, it's fantastic that they were, that local businesses were investing in films. Um, they were, um, early for us, you know, we didn't really have a film industry at all before that. So you could say it's our, like an embryonic stage in a way during the, the 80s. And um, they were all local. There was no foreign thing, uh, foreign films. Um, having said that, I I seem to recall there might have been one or two American films that came through that didn't employ any HODs or anything like that. They would come and sort of uh, use carpenter, carpenters and greens people. But um, essentially, the, it didn't really get cracking in New Zealand, I would say, until the 1990s, probably. What was that experience like working with Jane Campion? It was fantastic. And I must say, the last film I did, actually, wrapping about a couple of months ago, was with Jane Campion again. So it's like um, a 30-year kind of thing for me. But um, working with Jane um, on my first production design job was a high hurdle to jump. She was brilliant to work with, fantastic, intelligent, um, sensitive, uh, great writer and director, et cetera, et cetera. So it was like an initiation by fire, really, and it was really came up particularly well. And what was it like working with her 30 years later? Uh, it was even better, actually. <laughs> we both led the ropes a little bit more um, in terms of uh, filmmaking. And, um, you know, she's, uh, again, hasn't. what I love about her in particular is that she is uncompromising. She's uncompromising. I think that, in a way, is in some in some way is um, descriptive of successful people. The way that the people are able to hack out a sort of a, a career as an auteur, you have to be very strong-willed and kind of have a vision of your own vision and sort of bring that to the screen. In this case, and I think she's she's a really interesting object lesson for me to be able to kind of really have a strong vision for things and just push it through in a compromising way. What is that relationship like with you between you and the director? Because you're talking about how she has a strong vision. She's got all these images in her head. How are you working to bring those out into the real world? That's an interesting quote I read a little while ago, that ideas are great, but they're worthless unless you do something with them, unless you actually make something physical with it. So having ideas is... um, Really, very important having that sort of visionary sort of idea about how you want the film to be as a director, but actually making it happen is something else. Filming is a collaborative 
process. You know, I'm ta- I've talked just before about um, being uncompromising, but you can't do everything on your own. You know, employing somebody like me as a production designer means that I can bring my experience and my um, methods of making things real to the screen. Having said she's very visual, I would characterise Jane as being an actress director in many ways. She's um, very, very good at script writing and directing people. My skills are not so much in that, but in um, making these physical environments and sort of imagining the worlds that uh, it's going to take place in and making that real. Slightly different skills there. When you're doing that, what are your tools? Are you drawing a lot? Are you sculpting? How are you trying to say, okay, I hear you saying this, and this is what I think you're you're talking about? Back in the 1990s, when I was working with Jane, I would do all my own concept work. I was very, very keen draftsman at drawing. I would design all my own sets, um, draw them all up myself. Um, I was um, very involved in all the set decorating and prop- propping and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, uh, I wasn't quite the one-man band. You know, when you get into a production design uh, on a movie, you can't afford to be a one-man band. But I had all those skills very much at my fingertips. These days, I employ people to do most of those things. It's a toolkit. I see them being like a toolkit. It's Again, it's like taking a description that's sort of imaginary form. And it's interesting, you know, when we talk about ideas, we talk about them in terms of snapshots, of like visual snapshots, you know, like I see it this way or I picture it this way. Those seeing and those pictures are like these images that we have in our imagination that then there's a process of making them real through getting them down on paper or on screen, making them into a sort of a saleable item from my point of view because I've got to pitch these ideas as being, okay, this is this is how I see it, this is how it's going to look, you know, what do you think of this? Uh, I find it's a very valuable tool, actually, because when a director and a producer buy into the idea, they're buying into, you've got them sort of hooked. It's like fishing. You've got them hooked and you can, they give you the money to be able to make it. Um, they, you know, they provide these sort of um, infrastructure and logistics to be able to make it. And um, hence it sort of arrives on the screen. So it's like a um, converting ideas, these visionary ideas into something real is, um, Want to do. Tell me about the first time that you met with Peter Jackson and how much of a known quantity was he within the New Zealand film community at that time? New Zealand, it's a small place, but it's actually about the same size as the British Isles or as Japan. So it's small, but it's actually fairly large at the same time. Peter lived in a different city in Wellington and I lived in Auckland. And um, there was not a huge amount of um, interaction between the two cities. It's like, I don't know, like San Francisco and LA, for example, I suppose, you know, they're both in the same state, but they have their own kind of things going on. Uh, I'd obviously heard a lot about Peter. He was absolute character in terms of his early film, you know, Brain Dead and Meet the Feebles and things like that. So he heard of me, actually, it was through Jim Booth, who was his uh, producer at the time. Peter invited me to work on Heavenly Creatures, which was a... Um, film. He'd only just met Fran Walsh at that point, and I had, he and Fran had written the scripts for Heavenly Creatures, which was based on a an actual event, uh, a matricide that happened in another city, in Christchurch, and um, we all um, sort of decamped and went down to Christchurch and made that film together. 
we got on particularly well, Peter and I. You know, he's a really terrific guy. I actually met him physically the first time in Wellington. You know, he'd got a couple of movies under his belt, but he hadn't really made any money out of it. So he was living in this very small house, very much like your place, actually, with all the movies lined up along the wall. And he was, and his, his table, which dominated the room, was full of these um, movie-themed model-making things. So he'd buy these kit sets, and him and Richard Taylor would spend their time making, um, you know, like the real bottoms, really, making all these movie kind of things. They're very hands-on makey people which sort of reflected a lot in the in his early films you know and, and brain dead he used to make all his own props make his own prosthetics and all that sort of stuff and they'd all get dressed up together and go and shoot this thing together and by the time heavenly creatures came along um it was still this very handmade thing so i i met up with richard taylor and um you know he was already um playing around with the sort of plasticine type creatures that peter had written for Heavenly Creatures back then, and um, it was really great meeting them. And then, uh, you know, we got on very well. I got on very well with Peter and, uh, and so on and so forth. What do you remember as some of the bigger challenges when it came to Heavenly Creatures? Peter was very much, you know, he had this sort of very strong fantasy bent. So going up into the world of Barovnia, uh, as it was called in that movie, this fantasy world it was really new for me, you know. It was, it was new for me to be in charge and in control of the production design and things like that. So having that wonderful sort of quirky uh, fantasy world to make real was really, really cool. Peter was also very, very keen on building sets. So he was, was sort of almost a newish thing for him where he's able to be in total control of what the interiors were going to be and, you know, the control that a studio shoot has. We were playing with things like that a lot more. Like on with Jane Campion, there was some studio sets, but essentially it was a location-based shoot because of the of the um, budget that we had to spend. With Peter, he was kind of being this makey kind of guy. He was very interested in this process of set making and things like that. And I think uh, looking back, I can recognise a time when he – when it was like a new territory for him to be able to do all these cool production design things that um, he hadn't really had the money to play with before. So, you know, we went down that sort of journey. We went on that journey together, you could say. I was always curious as far as with something like Lord of the Rings, how is that having some things in the physical and some things more in the computer? How Are you working with the guys who are designing some of the computer models and saying it should be this and, and working those things out with them? Yes, yeah. That has um, fluctuated over the years. <clears throat> you know, Obviously, on Heavenly Creatures, um, there was just the very beginning of that digital world, um, both in New Zealand and in America, actually. Peter bought three silicon graphics computers back then and did those morphing. You remember that morphing sort of thing? <coughs> which was brand new back then. So um, we did that. And then, you know, as things like um, uh, the Frighteners came along, you know, that had something like 350 digital shots in that movie, which was the most of any movie that was ever made worldwide, the most sort of digital things. And then The Lord of the Rings started off a lot more makey in the first first film. And then by the time The, um, the Return of the King came along, it was absolutely dominant in, in the digital realm. So we'd gone through this sort of huge transition over a matter of six years that had gone from um, quite traditional 
um, scenographic kind of techniques through to a very, very visual, visual. So I was sort of riding that as it went along. My input into it is very much to do with the concept art and, and, and what have you. So the, on Lord of the Rings, you know, with Alan Lee and, and uh, John Howe, they, their concept work um, was all pencil, pencil on paper, very still analog. Slowly during that, during that process, we did more and more, um, digital, uh, concept work. Paul Lazane was another artist who came in from LA who did, did that sort of digital work for us and was really upping the ante in terms of this production, production work. So I, you know, as I, as I said before, my production design work is expressed in these early stages through production art, but production art through digital means, um, has grown and grown and grown. And now I, now when I start a movie these days, I have, I don't know, sometimes like seven or eight digital concept artists bringing the film to life for me. So it's a, that process is, um, it's grown. How things have changed over the years. They have and, and uh, they continue to change. You know, it's, it's a great thing about the medium is that it's a, about the industry is that it's not afraid of um, these new ideas. Well, tell me about the Frighteners. What was that experience like for you? This is great because uh, during the premiere of Heavenly Creatures, Peter came to Auckland, which is kind of a rare event actually because I'm an Aucklander. I'm, you know, I, I live here, and it, you know, we we're at the same um, screening, and Peter said, "Right, right, right. I've got, I've got a new movie. Are you free like now? <laughs> just, uh, just uh, this, this new film." I said, "Yep, I'll be there." So I, um, I moved down to Wellington for that. He had the script really, really set to go. He had uh, uh, produced by Bob Zemeckis. I think it was a, I think a Miramax um, film back then. But it was, it was all the everything was in place. And the, and you know, with the recognition that Peter had had from um, Heavenly Creatures, there was, um, I don't know, he was like the focus of kind of where it's at in terms of new filmmakers in, in New Zealand and maybe in America as well. Like he was um, really uh, an exciting person to be around back then. The, the Frighteners was. Moving back in a way, a little bit from the uh, Heavenly Creatures experience back to something that was full-on splatter theme uh, from Peter's earlier films. You know, it had a lot more in character, I should say, with Brain Dead and, and Meet the Feebles and what, and what have you. So it was sort of a frantic kind of a paced pre-production because it was had to be delivered quite quickly from my, from my memory. We just kind of got into it the same way that we did last time. You know, I did a lot of drawings and Peter was very keen to work back in Christchurch again after his success there with Heavenly Creatures. So we filmed a, a, some of our exteriors in a suburb called Littleton, which is just a, a sort of a port suburb of Christchurch. The rest of it was shot in Wellington in the, um, in the stages. Um, he had bought the, um, property in uh, Wellington, which uh, Richard Taylor and Weta Workshop still occupy. They still um, work from that same building, but at the time we converted it into a studio by pouring concrete across the roof, <laughs> you know, sound deadening it for the rain, um, and converted it to a studio, and we, and we built everything in there. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, fantastic. What is your process like when it comes to design? Do you do a lot of research before you even start to put pencil to paper? Yes, yes, more and more so these days. Uh, uh, there's a, this, the, actually the, my favorite phase of production design is learning about the context of the story, the place and time, the cult, the, the, the culture of the place that we are representing, things like that. So the Frighteners was, um, 
written as though it's in America, obviously kind of where in America, kind of we sort of extrapolated that it would be in um, probably the northern areas of California or the states just above that, you know, because it's sort of a little cooler, hillier, coastal, things like that, sort of with an old, older sort of Victorian-ish, Victorian-Edwardian kind of uh, overlay to it. Peter Jackson invited me up to L.A. actually with him. He had a meeting with, um, actually with Steven Spielberg, I remember. He was going to meet Steven Spielberg for the first time. And um, so he invited me up, and I was. Uh, he and I did a little bit of research while we were there. We visited uh, one or two police stations, which uh, were um, scripted in, in the front of the script. Um, we went on a bit of a shopping thing. Peter bought some old props from um, Star Wars. There was a shop down in, um, I can't remember the suburb now, in, in Los Angeles, um, but there was a shop that sold movie props, and he went in there and found a... Um, one of the stormtrooper guns from Star Wars, and he, and he you know, bought that. So I was with him. But anyway, yeah. In short, we went on a research trip up there, and uh, it was very, very good for me to to do that because I, you know, being a Kiwi boy, it was probably my first trip to to America actually. Back then, you know, I had to um, sort of drill down into what the culture and the and the the visuals were like for reproducing that in New Zealand. That must have been a little bit of a challenge to make a coastal town uh, from America in New Zealand. Yes, yeah. Well, a lot of the architecture is quite um, common uh, for the office part. Yeah, in fact, um, interestingly, a lot of the timber from New Zealand was exported to San Francisco to rebuild that city after the big earthquake. There's also a lot of um, cultural exchange back then, like um, San Francisco in particular and New Zealand and Melbourne had a lot of in common with the gold rush years and people and probably including architects and builders and things like that would would um, circulate around the Pacific. So, um, yeah, there was a lot in common with that. And um, I, I felt very comfortable with the um, houses we built. But also it was not just a matter of reproducing reality. You know, um, we wanted to give it the sort of familiar horror film overlay to it, you know, which tends to be that sort of period kind of thing. Um, try to achieve that as well. I imagine that it was fun to design the Bartlett house, especially that incredible gothic exterior. Yes, yeah, yeah. I did my research. San Francisco in particular has a lot of those old-style buildings still extant. So I did a lot of online and um, – but actually, back then, it was probably more book research, having said that. You know, online was a little less kind of full of those sorts of images. But uh, definitely uh, – in fact, I've still got a lot of those books here in the library behind me with, um, from that time of those old-style houses. Um, when I was up in America, I also bought, bought a lot of books, not just the – Photographs, but also the building techniques that they used to build them at the time, which are, again, very much in common with here. And then uh, just let our fantasy go, produce the design of that house according to what the script needed and the geography of the script, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. The exterior was a facade, and then the interior was built on the stage. I imagine a lot of um, Frank Bannister's house was stage-bound, though there, it feels like there are some times where it's shot on location. Yeah, Frank Benson's house was, you're right, actually, it was built partially on location and partially in the, in the studio as well. So um, it was obviously scripted as an unfinished house, so you could sort of see out through the walls, and it was um, a sort of a failed project in some ways. So we had a American art director who actually um, was giving us some tips on 
the joinery and things like that that um, Americans would use for their housing. That was very useful. But, you know, I mean, it was a it was fairly standard set building techniques back then for studio to studio to location builds. You talked a little bit about Lord of the Rings and that being such a change between the physical and the computer world. How much was that affecting your job once you got to the Frighteners and it was just such a massive special effects movie? I seem to recall it was a very standard sort of um, set design process for me. The, a lot of the effects work were done more with um, prosthetics and green screen and things like that. You know, there wasn't a lot of um, set extension and fantasy kind of things. Um, I don't think, you know, I'll have to go back and look at it again to remind myself, but um, there was a huge amount of visual effects shots, but a lot of it was to do with the characters that were ghosts. I mean, seeing ghosts and all that sort of stuff was a count. A lot of those. And, of course, you know, with these sort of action films and, and those sorts of ghost interaction, I suppose you could say, it, it, it became quite a sort of a mechanical exercise for me where the set and set dressing and props had to accommodate both of these worlds and this crossover between the two. So the ghost characters were shot separately, but they did have to interact with the set in many ways. What was that like um, designing a, a cemetery? Was that your first cemetery you got to design? Probably the first. I can't quite recall, but what we did, we, we actually went to a real, I went to a real cemetery and used an area of cemetery that was, um, vacant and put our own headstones and things in there. So, um, uh, Wellington was, had an excellent old Victorian cemetery, uh, very close to the city that we were able to, um, use as background. And we weren't able, to, you know, for, for, um, obvious reasons, we weren't able to shoot headstones and things like that of, in detail with people's names and things like that, but we put our own, we made our own headstones and we also um, built some um, mausoleums and things like that, which were really cool. And the inside of the mausoleums were done as studio builds, but there was all um, sort of, yeah, had to um, bridge the location to studio thing. Oh, I did have a a question about Lord of the Rings. As far as when you were working on that, was that, pretty much six years straight through or were there breaks in between? How was that actually paced? Because I just remember that movie being shot over such a long period of time. You were talking about the internet before and I think that was the first preview I ever downloaded on the internet because it was such a big deal when it uh, first uh, dropped. Okay, Lord of the Rings for me started almost immediately after Frightness. In this collaboration going with Peter was just fantastic. He actually didn't let slip that it was the Lord of the Rings when we first discussed it. Actually, he said it was it was um it was sort of an Project X, you could say, and then he's calling it the Hobbit back then, actually, and um as from from memory. Um, but anyway, he let slip uh, pretty soon afterwards that it was Lord of the Rings. And it was sort of collective intake of breath <laughs> when we learned about that. But look, that would have been um, uh, 1998. There was two. It ended up being two years of pre-production on those films and it went from two films to briefly being one film and then for it to um, be three films so it sort of um, went through various machinations in particular in the first year of pre-production then we filmed it the main production shoot was pretty much over a year or a year and a bit really my tenure on that was three and a half years maybe four years and then in back to back I had left the project when, at the end of the main production shoot, 
that was at about the time that the first film was coming out. Then they did a lot of pickups. And Dan Hanna did a lot of the pickups, my art director, because he was in Wellington. I was in Auckland and doing other other things by that point. Being a freelance designer, I've got to take the work when the work is there. So um, at the time, there was conflicting kind of schedule things for me to be able to do a lot of those pickups. So um, I didn't do six years straight. I did about four years. And then uh, the films came out, you know, in sort of year, year-long sort of blocks after that. There was, um, there was only sort of dribs and drabs for me past that point. Yes, it was like a real job, except it was like seven days a week and, you know, 60, 70 hour, hour a day, so uh, weeks. But um, it was, you know, the thing is that there was no time to sit back and um, dwell on it. It was full on, full on all that time. I did used to split away on um, weekends when I could to pop back to Auckland. I had a brand new son back then, so I... I you know, I'd be able to see the exponential growth of him sort of um, as I'd been away for like two or three weeks and I'd come back and then walk, walk. He's learnt to he's learnt to walk and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of things happened. You know, a lot of people got married. There was marriage breakups. There was babies. There was all sorts of things in that time. It was tumultuous. But it was, uh, it was no, like I said, there was no time to sort of take a breath. It went very quickly in retrospect, actually. Were you a fan of the book before you started on the project? I was definitely a fan of the book. I read it in the 1970s, as a lot of people had back then. It was part of the sort of culture, um, that, that book. So I knew of it. But, um, you know, New Zealand uh, at the time, I could say quite clearly, it was pre-Lord of the Rings, was quite a parochial place, you know, stuck at the bottom of the world. Nobody really knew about us. And we had our own thing going on. We, you know, we'd make films, movies and things like that, send them out to the world. But, you know, New Zealand changed a lot after that, you know, and, uh, yeah, it had a big effect on uh, the culture and the uh, place in the world. So when we first found out that the um, Lord of the Rings was um, going to be made in New Zealand, it was like, boy, that was for me in particular, it was a pretty heavy thing to take on board because it's an absolute one of the most well-read books in the world. It was um, a piece of iconic British culture in a way. It's very pervasive. So for us to take on something as important as that was a, a big deal. There was already a worldwide sort of a fan base, I suppose, of the book. A lot of people were saying, this should never be made into a film. It's, it's an amazing book. Why compromise it? Because, you know, a lot of, let's face it, I mean, a lot of books that get made into films degrade the book in, in many ways. They sort of colonize people's imagination with um, ideas and visions and rewrites and character, you know, actors and all that sort of stuff that are not the way that people imagined it. It's a very big deal for me in particular and for us collectively, probably. So, but the only way of us doing it is to treat it seriously. We had to treat it absolutely seriously and do it word by word from the book. It was um, the best way of us to, to do it. How do you get into the right place to be able to design that world? I mean, th- this is a fantasy world, but are you basing it on real-life things? Of course. The book was written as Middle-Earth, but written by Tolkien, who has, was a, um, a linguist and an academic, and uh, along with many other things, he'd been in the First World War. He's very much had his feet on the ground in terms of creating this fantasy. 
the geopolitics, when you look at the books, is very much to do with England's place in the world and the and the north northern countries and the the eastern sort of wilds out there towards kind of Russia, if you like, you know, uh, where all the hordes would come from, the the exotic kind of um, uh, armies that would turn up in the return of the king from the sort of southwestern areas. So there's that sort of geopolitics side of things. There's the physics of the world wasn't in some outer space completely fantasy thing. It was very grounded in um, the world that we know. The buildings um, were sort of uh, very, very well described. Though, you know, we looked at Romanesque period of time and architecture as the sort of precedence of a lot of the design, which, which in turn was very influential on sort of the um, European culture and, and um, building sort of precedence and things like that. But of course, each different race in uh, Lord of the Rings has its very own idiosyncratic place in the world, its very own culture. We adapted those architectural and um, physical sort of precepts into what a dwarves' underground worlds would be like, you know. And also on the other extreme, what the elven architecture would be like, living in trees and living forever and all that sort of stuff. They all had, had to be rooted in the real world, and I think sort of summed it up for me some time back. He said, Grant, it's got to be real. People don't believe the world that we're in, then they won't believe that there are ants and dwarves and hobbits and things like that. You know, it's got to be a world and for it to be believable. We've got to quote things that people know and things that people know as the architect that they see, what have you. I guess I misspoke a little before. You've you've done a um, a cemetery, but you've also done a tomb. You did all of uh, Durin's tomb design, I'm sure. Yeah, and I've done a tomb since then as well. Actually, I'm not for other directors. So yeah, um, seems to be a thing. <laughs> what was it like uh, designing Skull Island? Obviously, it's a, in a same in a similar way to Lord of the Rings. It's a well loved film that existed way before we ever got our hands on it. And there was no way that Peter was going to um, change the fundamentals of that. It was, it's a re- it's a, it was going to be um, extending it, reimagining it, but keeping the same fundamental kind of thing to it. So Skull Island is a interesting world because it's, a, it's small, it's hazardous, and um, it's got all these dinosaurs in it. So how can dinosaurs and massive creatures like that exist on such a small island. Um, so it's interesting, actually. I come across this quite often in production design. You have to sort of, you have to sort of rationalize, create a backstory for something as idiosyncratic as that. Um, so in my own mind, uh, Skull Island had once been a continent-sized place which was able to support a lot of those gigantic creatures and had progressively fallen into the sea. So the only part with left were like the tips of the mountains, you could say, where everything is sort of like had to gravitate towards to stay out of the sea, to stay out of the ocean. So I saw it as being like something like that. And also being that it had fallen into the sea, it, it suffered geographically a lot of violent things like volcanoes and earthquakes and um, these sorts of landslides and things like that had shaped the world into a sort of a an aggressive, sharp kind of a place. Unlike America, for example, which has been shaped a lot by by glacial things, where everything's rounded off and smoothed off. 
a little more like New Zealand in some ways, where it's a brand new country or like a like a country that's formed by volcanics and by tectonic sort of things. So that was the sort of geographical side of it. It's also um, inhabited by a race of people that has also found themselves on the tip of this mountain, which has now become a, an island, um, sort of crammed beside this sort of wild land of dinosaurs and what have you. They had to build this enormous wall to keep, keep them away just to be able to survive. Some of those dinosaurs are flying dinosaurs, so, you know, they've had to create all these sort of sharp things around their buildings to sort of stop the birds from landing there, much the same way that they put these sharp things on the top of buildings to stop pigeons landing. You know, it's a, something similar to that, but on a sort of a, you know, a big scale. So, yeah, there's all sorts of really wonderful things to work with and with um, King Kong to be able to form that island. How were you or were you not affected by COVID? Are you still working on things even today? Yes, yeah. we've uh, COVID has sort of come and gone from New Zealand now, really. It's a uh, we are still isolating in New Zealand, i.e. we don't have our borders open, except for um, the likes of James Cameron, whatever you want to make films. But essentially, it's a closed, closed-off country. For our humanitarian reasons, we have New Zealanders coming back to New Zealand, and some many of them have COVID, but they are in quarantine at the borders. Um, but there's nothing, there's no community um, transference, and we've just come down off mask wearing and things like that. So, we, you know, essentially the country and the film industry in particular is back in business and we're, we're actually, the film business itself is actually extremely busy at the moment, maybe because of that. What are you working on? As I say, I just finished a film with Jane Campion called The Power of the Dog. That'll be coming out next year. At the moment, I'm just doing bits and bobs, waiting for something interesting to come along. Mr. Major, thank you so much for your time. This has been great talking with you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I love, I love talking about films and filming, so anytime. We are back and we were talking about The Frighteners. A few weeks ago, we were talking about Spielberg when he got into that area of his career where he was producing and directing and he produced Poltergeist. Some people say that he directed it as well. And then you have Zemeckis in this period of his career where he is starting to produce stuff, even though he was one of those like incubator cases of, of Spielberg. So here he is producing this. And what I found amusing was that this is also the period of time where Peter Jackson is producing stuff, and he's doing things like Jack Brown Genius, which he and Fran wrote. Uh, he was co-directing and producing Forgotten Silver. I mean, his output during these days, it was just incredible. Uh, I did go back and I watched Jack Brown Genius, which it has taken me forever to finally watch it. I almost turned it off after about 10 minutes, but then I stuck with it, and I'm glad that I did. It's very interesting, and plus it's got our main character from Dead Alive, and also the preacher who kicks ass for the Lord is one of the characters in it as well. It's decent. It's no Forgotten Silver, but it's pretty decent. Forgotten Silver is brilliant. What's funny about Zemeckis is in that documentary, I had such a good chuckle at this. He goes, this is the most insane, over-the-top special effects I've ever seen in a movie, says the guy who's about to make The Polar Express within the next <laughs> decade. Or Death Becomes Her. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that Death Becomes Her was after this, but that was 92. 
And Death Becomes Her was like in that wheelhouse of this almost Tales from the Crypt-esque thing that he was getting into. I would contend that Zemeckis never left. A lot of the movies that he's made are just so bad you could think that they're bad episodes of the show. And yet, even when they're bad, they have moments of greatness. I remember back when I was a film critic, I I was dreading to go see Flight. <laughs> and the first 10, 15 minutes of that movie is just incredible filmmaking. Truly incredible filmmaking. I hated the rest of the movie, but... It showed me like, oh, you know, when Zemeckis really cares about something from a visual or or directorial standpoint, he really can deliver the goods. But it just feels like everything he does anymore, he really doesn't care. You know, you mentioned, Mike, the whole thing with Spielberg and Hooper and Peter Jackson and Zemeckis. I think at the end of the day... This does feel more like a Robert Zemeckis movie than a Peter Jackson movie. Tonally, it's kind of weird and all over the place. And like, that's maybe the Peter Jackson influence. But it still kind of feels more Zemeckis than any other thing that it feels. I can see that in terms of its frantic energy, except for maybe Brain Dead. Jackson didn't always feel frantic to me, like, like running on a hamster wheel kind of energy that Zemeckis kind of leans into with a lot of his movies. I would say there's a lot of stuff in here Zemeckis would never, ever do. There's a anarchic quirkiness to it that I think is part and parcel of people like Raimi and Jackson and, and even Burton. And I don't think of Zemeckis as that. Zemeckis is like, very controlled chaos. He might have an outlandish idea, but his execution of it is always very precise. And Jackson, like Raimi and other directors in that kind of oeuvre, aren't afraid to play it loose that way and just see what happens and maybe cross the line into being a little profane or being a little risky. Like a mummy being humped by a ghost. Right. Yeah. Or or making jokes about American serial killers racking up numbers or blowing off someone's head or having a swastika on a hand. You know, like all these things are just kind of they're not afraid to go there. And I don't ever see that in a Zemeckis movie. Zemeckis is much toes the line a lot more. He's more Spielberg in that way. He's kind of like Spielberg's wilder brother. I, I agree with what you're saying. But for me, like early Zemeckis, like I want to hold your hand and use cars, feel much more anarchic than even something like Bromance in the Stone or Back to the Future. It feels like those first few things were just like him and Gail just being wild and doing their thing. And then you get into trouble when it comes to something like 1941, which I know he didn't direct, but that has that anarchy as far as the screenplay goes. But yeah, I agree with you that, that the man who makes What Lies Beneath is not the same guy who makes this craziness here that we see in, in this movie. But I will say that I think between Jake Busey, who was in Tales from the Crypt, and then also had that very memorable role in Contact, and then Michael J. Fox, who he worked with several times before, that it really casts a Zemeckis shadow over this film a lot. 
Michael J. Fox also worked on Tales from the Crypt and directed an episode of the show and also was in the episode he directed. What's weird to me is how deep the connection goes from Zemeckis to Tales and then to other things. But yet, Jake Busey and Michael J. Fox, those are people that had worked with Zemeckis before. We talked about how this might have been a Tales from the Crypt movie. I was doing some research, and there was an article that, oh, From Dust Till Dawn was almost a Tales from the Crypt movie. And I have to call bullshit on that, because I know that that was written many years before even Pulp Fiction, in that the character that Harvey Keitel ended up playing he was giving the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen speech, and that was driving away the vampires. He was, it was Tarantino was just looking for a place where that speech would fit in after seeing it in the Sonny Chiba movie. So the, we almost had it in that had it been green lit, and had it been green lit, it would have been I think before Tales from the Crypt even got off the ground. So maybe somebody tried to put it across Zemeckis's desk, but I one hundred percent don't buy it. You know what's funny about it was almost a Tales from the Crypt episode? That in recent years has felt to me like something that we got a little later, which was this was almost an X-Files episode. You see the same thing. I mean, The One and Final Destination, those are both confirmed were essentially X-Files spec scripts. Yeah, but they were also created by the very people who worked on. Yeah, James Wong. Excellent. Sure. Yeah. yeah, James Wong and Darren or and Glenn Morgan. Yeah, but to be fair, I mean, I don't understand how Peter Jackson never worked on Tales from the Crypt. Honestly, like that's one of those things that I've never understood because you have a lot of people working on that show around this same time. Well, he would have had to have come to Hollywood. That's fair. The Frighteners really reminded me a lot of Mr. Vampire 3, just in this idea of the con man with the ghosts. And I'm I'm sure it had to have been done other places. I was racking my brain last night trying to think of other places where we have a con man with ghosts who are haunting places. And I know I'll probably get a couple tweets or comments and, you know, hey, you stupid asshole, you forget about this thing. But the full ghost. I mean, Whoopi Bollberg is a con man, you know, spiritualist who then contacts a real ghost. So It's funny, Mike, you mentioned that because when we talked about thirst on my podcast, we talked about the shower scene with the blood. And it's that same thing where it's like, I'm, I keep thinking this should have already been a thing, but it's not because it feels so on the nose. Like a paranormal con man, a guy who can see ghosts in his pals with the ghosts. Like that's that shit writes itself. But yet, like, here we are, Frighteners. It's like, Frighteners and Ghosts, but Frighteners is, like, the only thing that's, like, really done it, like, full gusto. And that's just kind of weird. But yeah, I do have to recommend Mr. Vampire 3, because the there is a character that Richard Eng plays, and he is a exorcist, a Chinese exorcist, who's gets hired at the very beginning to go in and, and clean this house. And he's got these two vampire friends that he hangs out with or spirit friends and he will exercise them and then like basically get the money and do all this kind of stuff. And as the movie goes on, his character gets less and less important. And then he finally comes back towards the end of it. But I would recommend if you haven't seen Mr. Vampire three, definitely check it out. And you'll you'll definitely see some uh, some similarities there. I wanted to know because they bring it up and they really hammer it home at the end of that documentary. 
I feel like some of these things may have been because of this. How do y'all think this film would have fared as a actual R-rated film? Because they like kind of opine that at the end of the documentary, you hear everyone being like, I don't understand the MPAA. I guess I don't tend to think about ratings too much. So it's like I didn't even realize that this wasn't an R-rated film or was it a PG-13 or what? It's an R-rated film. What they wanted was what they were lamenting was that they couldn't be a PG-13 movie. And so they didn't embrace it being an R movie because it was supposed to be PG-13 to begin with. But I didn't get the feeling that they wanted to embrace the R. They really were aiming for PG-13. And then, um, I mean, unless in its early iterations, but it seemed like their goal was to create a PG-13 movie. And I think what Jackson was expressing so much frustration over was nothing he could do would get him that PG-13. And so then he just decided to blow the guy's head off because it was like, fuck it. (laughs) If they were going to lean into R, it would have to be either more dead alive-ish, right? Like with over-the-top kills and things like Like that. There's no gore in this movie. I mean, it's... Right, like it's ghosts. Only gore is the CGI dammer's head. Right. Right. And that was added sticks out like a sore thumb. Because it was put in because they didn't give a shit at that point, like you mentioned. The whole ending could have been an R-rated movie, right? Like, the the last 20 or 30 minutes, if that had just been the movie, I could have seen an R version of that. But everything that precedes it, the ghosts and the con man and the even the Reaper, I don't know, it seems very hard to imagine it as an R film. Unless the Reaper goes around, you know, slicing off heads and carving into bodies. Unless it was just they wanted to embrace it more in the dialogue, but then that changes nothing anyways. They get to say fuck a few times. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, two or th- two or three times is all it takes. They really wanted to let Chai curse up a storm. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills presents Ray Milland in a preview of his forthcoming Paramount picture, The Big Clock. But first, a word from the director of this program, Mr. Anton M. Leader. Suspense is my business. But of the hundreds of spine-chilling tales I've seen, heard, or read, The Big Clock tops the list for its relentless grip on the emotions, for its ever-mounting spell of suspense. And now, Ray Milland in highlights of his amazing role in The Big Clock. My time is running out. Every second brings me closer to death. They're hunting for me everywhere, but they don't know how close I am. Right here, trapped by the big clock. An average guy with a family and a job he liked, with everything turned upside down by the strange things that happened in 36 hours. A wonderful afternoon with Georgette, wanted me for all the right reasons. The crazy evening with Pauline, who wanted me for all the wrong ones. The long moment with Janeth, who wanted me for his own dark reasons. We have our man. He was just seen entering the building. I want an emergency order issued. All exits blocked, the building closed. Nobody is identified. You take charge. Yes, I led the hunt for the man that nobody knew. And the orders were shoot to kill. 
twisting and turning through all the shadowed byways of a skyscraper city. A grim, relentless search that could lead to only one man. Myself. Well, that's just a brief hint of the thrills which make the big clock far more than just an exciting picture. To my mind, it's one of the screen's great masterpieces of suspense. And it's coming to this theater. So don't miss it. That's right, we kick off November 2020 next week with a look at John Farrow's The Big Clock. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Jeff. So, Chris, what is happening with you, sir? Well, just uh, finishing up Horrortober on uh, the Culture Cast. So, just got done watching a bunch of uh, Australian horror films. Just a hop, skip, and a jump from The Frighteners. I mean, they're weird movies, I guess, but not they're not two hours weird. But a lot of Australian horror movies, so you can find uh, my podcast over at CultureCast.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Casualty underscore Chris. Jeff, how have you been spending your plague year, sir? Working and writing. A movie I wrote is going to hit streaming platforms. Um, I think it'll be... It'll be out by the time this plays live, uh, called Mimesis Nosferatu. I wrote the script for that. I've got a bunch of pitching up at studios coming up in the next couple of weeks. So, I don't know, knock on wood or spin prayer wheels for me. Uh, other than that, you know, still got my gig at Apple working in TV and movies and, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with my kids who are at home. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Every day, 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 every day,
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.